I just want to apologise to Mark's mum and my mum. I'm sorry to everyone. I was very naive. I'm so, so sorry for everything that's happened because in spite of what Mark says now, it is my fault. This is my project and I insisted. I insisted on the podcast. I insisted on the marketing kangaroo. I insisted we keep going. I insisted that we join Stitcher. Everything had to be my way, and this is where we've ended up. And it's all because of me that we're here now, hungry and cold and horny. I love you, Mum and Dad. I'm so sorry. What is that? I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. I'm going to die. Here. On the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, this is Kino Inferno, live from the spooky woods. Um, you can hear the sound of the spooky woods all around you. Um, is that an owl? Obviously, yeah, that might be an owl. Um, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, that is the sound of a skylark in the background. Just making more work for myself in the edit. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, um, we've been lost in the spooky woods for some time. Uh, you may have heard uh, about our disappearance on, on the on the news. Or uh, hopefully by the time this podcast is released, you will have. Uh, the marketing roo has disappeared. We've not seen him for days. Um, we've resorted to... Uh, well, we're both eating parts of Mark at this point. Yeah. I mean, I've not looked this mm. good in a while. Like I've dropped a lot of weight as a result, so I'm very happy about it. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. yes, we are missing in the woods. Um, I know there is a helpline set up to help all of you grieving, filthy sluts out there who are inevitably very crushed that we've gone missing. But the Keenies, the Keenies can save the us. Keenies, I like that. Um, so mm. the Keenies, if you're listening, please come and find us in the woods. We are very scared, very horny. We're so horny. Please help us. Please come. We've been and... jerking off like mad. Honestly, you'd have thought we'd be able to find the trail back from the amount of jizz everywhere, but it's... from the amount of jankum. But the fact is, there's jankum in all directions at this point. Yeah, like we can't tell what slime belongs to us, what slime belongs to whatever's been chasing us. It's it's a whole mm. thing. So, Keenies, mm. please come find mm. us. Mm. Please, Keenies, please come find us. Um, but you know, whilst we wait, Mark, we might as well discuss a few movies. Since we brought all our recording equipment out with us for some reason, um, or for some unknown reason, we're recording the podcast here in the, the spooky woods. Um, so we might as well do that because, as you know, podcasting keeps us warm. And to be honest, you've lost a lot of blood. I have. Um, so, um, you know, I'm starting to worry about you because you are my main food source. Yeah, I like. I don't feel so hot, you know? I've got a light head. Yeah, well, just keep your spirits up. Keep your spirits, spirits come up. By um, come by so what are we talking about today? What are we talking about? Keep my spirits up. Keep me Well, alive. today, Mark, we are talking about... Uh, well, if I just uh, get the uh, schedule of episodes out, which I took with me in, in, instead of a map, um, which might explain why we're in our current predicament. That is true. If you would have brought the map, you wouldn't be eating me right now. You know, I'd, well, I'd have significantly you know, more blood in my body. Yeah, well, and if the marketing roo hadn't slashed the tires of our four by four, we also wouldn't be stranded in the woods. But you know, it's c- woulda, coulda, shoulda, Mark. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. I mean, we should have also brought a tent. That's true. Yeah, we should have brought a tent and some food. But we didn't. We brought we brought podcasting equipment instead. And these so, two movies you know. that we somehow watched in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so um, 
okay. I mean, don't break, don't break, don't break the storyline, the narrative. We're here in the spooky woods. <laughs> oh, is that an owl again? <laughs> it is the owl. We can see him, but we cannot hear him. <laughs> crucially. Um. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yes, what we're discussing today, Mark, is found footage horror cinema. Mm-hmm. Cinema. Um. My choice, uh, as I'm sure the listeners will be surprised to learn, is the Blair Witch Project. Kind of, um, not the first ever found footage horror movie, of course, but the one that's kind of the um, trope codifier, you know? Yeah. The It's kind of the Johnny Big Bollocks of uh, found footage horror movies. Yeah, like how last week we were talking about the whole proto-slashers thing, Blair Witch is to the found footage genre what Halloween is to the slasher movies. It's very much the movie that exemplifies what that genre is and laid all the groundwork for all of the countless imitators that came afterwards and yeah it is definitely worth pointing out like you did that it wasn't the first one because there are films that existed beforehand that did it um the last broadcast being the main one that everyone sort of brings up when they try to be cannibal holocaust Holocaust again that's the other one um and the main one actually which the makers of the blair witch project did cite um at one point uh, which is one that we have both seen because we've watched it together, is Ghost... Uh, <clears throat> let me redo that. One that we have seen together, uh, which is Ghost Watch. Yes, the uh, the BBC classic suicide-inducing um, <laughs> horror from the 90s. Yeah, 92, I believe, the year that I was squeezed out uh, was Ghost Watch. Um if you haven't seen Ghostwatch, you should definitely check it out because it is fucking wild that something like that got broadcast on television when it did. And this, yeah. the fallout of it is even more insane, you know. People genuinely believed it was real, which I guess people were just far stupider back then. Well, we'll get into this because people thought Blair Witch was real as well. But So my, we know my choice is uh, the Blair Bitch Project. What was your choice? I chose The Borderlands. Um, when we talked about doing a found footage episode, I had a few different films in mind. Uh, Wreck was one that I considered. Uh, yeah, we, we tossed out a few for this one because we talked about Troll Hunter, yep. a Cloverfield. Yep. Which I think would have been fun movies to talk about on some level, but the reason why I settled on The Borderlands is because... It's relatively unknown outside of the horror community. It's one that I don't typically hear spoken about a lot, but one that I think is definitely worth talking about. Yeah, I'd never seen it before we uh, before we watched it out here in the creepy woods. Um, weird choices of movies to watch in the creepy woods when you're trying not to think about your inevitable demise, but uh, hey-ho. Um, in general then, Mark, what is your take on the found footage genre? I am of the opinion that when it is done well, it's always an entertaining watch, at least. I think it definitely got overdone very quickly, and a lot of the time it's an excuse for filmmakers to... um, How how to put this? I feel like it's an excuse for filmmakers to think they can get away with stupidly low budgets, if that makes sense. Or at least yeah, they think yeah. of an idea and go, oh, well, if we just film it on a shitty, cheap camera and like shake the camera around a little bit, we could just say it's a found footage movie. And uh, that's the sort yeah, of stuff yeah. that I don't go in for. For me, I like the ones where the actual the format in which it's made feeds into the story, which I do think both Blair Witch Project and The Borderlands do 
quite well. Mm. Yeah, I think I have to agree with that. I'm I'm a lot harsher on this genre than you are, I, I would say. Um, I can't think of many fan footage movies. Uh, do we really do we need to explain what fan footage means? I don't think we do at this point, right? Like people kind of know yeah, I think people know, but you know, just for the the, the two people listening that don't, uh, you know, the the ones that are trying to be cultured. Yeah, essentially, fan footage. What we mean by that is, um, I mean, it's hard not to just go like, you remember Blair Witch? <laughs> but um, basically, movies that are works of fiction, but they purport to be and are shot in the style of. Uh, you know, footage that was taken by the characters within the story. So often there'll be, uh, you know, a, um, a re- so for example in Blair Witch it's three student filmmakers and the footage found in their cameras is all that remains of them, you know, there'll be some kind of uh, gimmick like that. Or in the case of Cloverfield, uh, it's, it kind of purports to be like footage of a, of a giant monster attack that is, um, yeah, it's like military stuff, right? Like the military have compiled all this footage of the event kind of like how they did with 9-11 yeah and the, the thing about the found footage genre as well is and it's definitely definitely a trapping that it can't help but fall into is that in the name found footage gives you an indication of how 99% of these movies end yes and certainly the two we've picked today definitely fall into that <laughs> spoilers um, uh, <laughs> I will say one of the main issues I often have with found footage is the um and I don't want to be one of these people's like plot holes, meh, but I think one of the issues I have is that they spend a lot of time kind of being like, and this is why the characters are filming at this current time. But then there's always a point where you go, but why are they still filming? Like Cloverfield yeah. suffers from this a lot because the idea of Cloverfield, I know they're trying to tie uh, like the kaiju attack in with like ideas of 9-11 and how that was like the first major disaster that was kind of filmed on camcorders and mobile phones and all the rest of it but it just kind of doesn't work because a lot or for me it doesn't anyway spoiler alert if we ever cover Cloverfield but that's a movie that specifically gets under my skin because there's a lot of stuff in there where it's like okay so it's supposed to be what we're watching is like a military video that's been compiled from civilian footage right like they've confiscated this footage and taken it for themselves or what have you but then there's little things in the movie where it's like Okay, but whoever cut this footage together in the military saw fit to cut back to scenes of a random party to set up the characters' relationships and builds on the romantic through line all the way through. It's like, <laughs> sorry, have we got a little filmmaker in our midst? Like, this is supposed to just be footage of a disaster that they're watching to ascertain what happened. I know that's the kind of thing, like, you know, willing suspension of disbelief is one thing, obviously, but every found footage movie that I watch has a moment where I go why does this exist apart from to serve the narrative of a narrative film i mean i'm a lot more chronicle has a particularly bad example as well so i need to i need to get this for it the chronicle is a movie that i I, fit, I enjoyed fairly well but there is so for people who don't remember chronicle it's kind of a found footage superhero thing right like science fiction superhero thing about teens who get superpowers and the whole thing is one of the kids is this uh, this loner and over the course of the movie, he kind of, spoiler alert, turns into a bit of a supervillain, right? Um, he kind of goes mad with power. But the whole thing is, him filming himself is kind of the foreshadowing of his eventual descent because it kind of reveals his sort of twisted narcissism. However, there is a scene in that movie where, for no apparent reason, his mate turns up at the girl he fancies' house 
without this character there. So it's him on his own. And he's just filming her for no good reason. Yeah. And she was also yeah. just filming randomly yeah. for no good reason as well. And it's just kind of like, okay, this scene has to happen so that we set up that they've got a relationship. That's the only reason this, season, this scene exists. But why are these two characters filming each other? Like, surely there's a more elegant way that you could have slipped that in rather than... Like, you could have just had him mention or just be on the phone or, you know... You could have had it built into dialogue rather than... Do you know what really bugs me about that scene? Uh, Because I only watched Chronicle for the first time fairly recently. Uh, I know exactly the scene that you're talking about where he shows up at her house. But there's... The way that shot is framed is like an actual film. It's yes. it's a very deliberately placed shot, and that really threw me. I, I thought Chronicle was fine. Like it was it was fine. I enjoyed mm. it for what it was. I mean, I, as you say, I'm a little bit more forgiving of the found footage genre than what you are. I think it's because I kind of go into any of these movies, and I'm like, the narrative conceit as to why they're still filming is nine times out of ten going to be shit, and I just kind of accept that as the given. And yeah, yeah, and yeah, there are examples that I think do get around it quite well I mean I mentioned Wreck earlier which I think is a fantastic example of the genre um, wherein that the characters are um, quarantined within a building and the, the two main characters are a news crew and their logic is we need to be filming this because the people who are outside need to know what's happening in here and I'm like yeah you can you kind of yeah, get yeah. away with that and obviously it plays into the finale of the movie where they go into the pitch black apartment and they use the camera's night vision again that's a fucking huge trope yeah. in the genre at this point um that kind of gets away with it, in my opinion. Um, Cloverfield is fucking stupid, but I low-key do quite enjoy that film, I'm not going to lie. Now we've kind of uh, spewed forth our opinions on the genre in general, let's get into our specific examples. So first up is my choice as we sit around this dwindling campfire in the spooky woods, wondering if the marketing room will ever return to us. Um, my choice be is... better, I'm fucking hungry. The ble- Sorry, we just had to pause there because a motorbike went by in the spooky woods. Um, Anyway, the choice is... Help! (laughs) (laughs) uh, The choice is uh, the Blair Witch Project. Let's hear a clip. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry because it is my fault because it was my project. I am so scared. The Blair Witch Project tells the story of Heather, Mike and Josh as they try to make an indie documentary in the woods of Black Hills near Burkittsville, Maryland, on the subject of the local legend, the Blair Witch. As they journey into the woods in pursuit of the truth within the myth, they get more and more lost and ever more frantic, and it soon becomes clear that they are being pursued by something or someone that means them harm. The film is presented, innovatively for the time, as the footage shot by these students after their cameras were recovered following their collective disappearance. Um, So that is about it in terms of plot for the Blair Witch. Um, There's incidents along the way that we'll discuss and character stuff that we'll discuss, but we're kind of cruising along assuming that everyone has either seen this film, given that it came out in 1999 and was massive at the time, or kind of roughly knows the plot. So, if you've not seen this, in true Kino Inferno fashion, 
Fuck you. Yeah, we're just going to talk all over it, so... We're going to go from... Because here's the thing, I was watching this um, last night in the spooky woods, and um, I was kind of thinking, like, how do I even summarise the plot to this movie? Because it really is, they go into the woods and get lost, really. Like, that, that is the... Yeah. You know, obviously there's things that happen along the way, some spooky rocks and bizarre twig figures appear and stuff like this, but... After that initial opening thing where they're interviewing the locals about the Blair Witch, it really just becomes the story of them running around in the woods and getting ever more lost and pissy with each other. Yeah, essentially. Like, there is a story going on, but, like, it's more what you slowly find out as they get more and more lost and they come across, like, say, like, the the formations of rocks and, you know, Mm. they come across, say, like, the house towards the end of the movie and stuff. Because pretty much all of the story is set up in that opening when they're interviewing... Uh, yes. all, the, all the townsfolk. That's where they allude to things like Rustin Parr, the uh, guy who murdered children in the woods. Uh, yeah, supposedly they, at the behest of the Blair Witch. Yes, it's yeah heavily implied that he was doing her bidding. Uh, we then also hear some accounts of people who say they've seen the Blair Witch. Uh, we mm. meet those uh, sort of local types that don't take kindly to the three filmmakers being in the woods, which is another element that they kind of throw into it. Um, before we sort of dive into it, I am curious, because you picked this one uh, for this episode. Yes. Like, what's your relationship to this movie? Well, this is the second time that I've seen The Blair Witch Project. Um, I saw it once as a ute uh, back in the 2000s. Um, I think I was kind of aware of it. Do you know what? As a young child, I was... Um, might surprise you to learn, I was quite afraid of horror movies in general. Um supernatural stuff especially used to really get under my skin so i remember this movie coming out and being around and having this reputation of like is it real is it not i think my parents had it on vhs um not that i watched it at that age but uh yeah so i always kind of had this idea of this movie being like super super terrifying like it had this uh, reputation that was almost like um how people talk about the exorcist right where it's like this this terrifying thing um, and I was scared shitless to watch The Exorcist when I first saw that as well, for the uh, for the same reasons. Um, but yeah, so when I eventually got around to watching it as a team, I have to say I was not overly impressed. I was expecting something that was just going to like terrify me out of my mind. But I had a lot of friends who were super into this one, I seem to remember. Um, I think at the time, there was almost this thing of like, uh, you know, given the time period, the sort of late nineties, early two thousands, you were either like a Blair Witch kid or a Matrix kid at my school. Like, there was, <laughs> if you were into film, you know what I'm saying. Like some yeah, people, no, yeah. some people were super into the mythos of Blair Witch, and some people were super into the mythos of the Matrix. Right, and like that was kind of where the divide fell. And I definitely fell on the side of the Matrix in that in that debate. Um, that said, uh, this isn't a film that I really remember like strongly disliking i just kind of remember there being a feeling of like is that it when i watched it for the first time i had a very similar experience in the when i first saw it when i was a teenager when i was first sort of getting into horror movies and we've talked about this kind of thing on the show before but like when you're a teenager your taste in horror tends to be dictated by how violent and gory and twisted something tends to be um, mm. Or at least, you know, my circle of friends, that was the case. Like, you know, we would seek out, like, extreme horror movies and stuff. So The Blair Witch Project was something that we'd heard was genuinely scary. And I remember watching it and not being scared by it and finding it kind of dull. And so I never never went to it again. 
I am, however, happy to report that I rewatched this film again uh, a year or two ago. It was during lockdown, actually. I, I watched it again. I thought I'd give it another chance. And I've never had my opinion on a movie change so drastically like I have this one. I mm. was genuinely really kind of bowled away when I watched it again for the first time. Uh, because not only was I wrong, because it's not a boring movie at all, in my opinion, uh, it's genuinely a really fucking great horror movie. And I was sort of kicking myself a little bit for sleeping on it for so long. And I have yeah. watched it a few times again since. I'm not going to lie, I genuinely find this film to be quite unsettling every single time I've seen it since. There's, there's stuff think, in this film that really gets under my skin. Yeah, I think I agree with that to some extent. Um, I don't think this is ever going to be a film that I would hold up as like my favourite horror movie or being in my top five or anything like that. But um, I think in terms of watching it again for, for this episode... I was definitely struck by it being kind of um, a bit more atmospheric than I remember it being. And I do actually think part of that is um, the fact that it feels like an old, like a much older film now, obviously. like mm. When we first watched it, obviously, you know, we are probably too young to watch it when it first came out, because it came out in 1999. But, like, we probably would have seen it still drawing its kind of heyday, so to speak, you know, when people held it in very high regard. Um you know, over 20 years later now, it kind of has a very different um, feel to it because it feels so much more of a period piece. Yeah. And I think that actually does lend something to the movie in a strange way. Like, it kind of has this out-of-time quality to it. Because we should say, um, from the three lead characters who you spend most of the movie with are extraordinarily 90s people, just yeah. in the way they dress, yeah, the way they talk, the fact they all smoke, for example. Yeah. Um, and it's all filmed, um, you know, with 90s camcorders and very grainy quality. And, and filmed the by them as well. That's the other thing. Yeah, filmed by the cast IRL, yeah. Yeah, and again, that really lends it a, a sense of authenticity, I think, that you don't get with a lot of the other found footage movies. Like, you mm. you, did, you genuinely do get the sense that these three characters are filming everything that happens to them. Um, yeah. One thing that I will say, because I, again, I've... I will hold my hands up and say that I do find this to be a legitimately very creepy film. Um, and I think one thing about why I find it so creepy, and I think you'll definitely understand what I mean by this, is since, uh, you know, obviously maturing in years and such, um, and you, you kind of develop more of an appreciation for film, films like this where, you know, it's kind of more about the sort of mental headspace of the characters because, like, you know, you really kind of sense their, like, paranoia and their distrust of one another. And, like, I find that sort mm. of stuff really quite effective in films. But having been student filmmakers ourselves and yes. carried heavy equipment through the woods in not great yes. weather and, you know, the schedule's not quite right and, you know, tensions are running high, I really feel like I relate to this movie these days because, like... Yes. I think that's um, kind of why it gets to me so much because I know exactly what it's like to be in that position minus, you know, being stalked by some kind of unseen entity. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that, actually. This is something I was going to bring up myself, um... Maybe this is something that other listeners can't necessarily relate to, depending on who they are, but definitely watching this, I was like, this movie makes a lot more sense to me now, yeah. <laughs> since now that I've been a student filmmaker. Um, and I have to say, like, one thing that definitely, I think, um, reflects that is, when I first watched this movie as a teen, I thought Heather was insufferable, right? So Heather, for people who don't remember, is the sort of director-slash-presenter of the of the documentary she's the one who does most of the filming especially as it goes along the other two have kind of 
given up on the idea of making a film. They just want to get out of the woods. Um, I thought she was insufferable to begin with uh, when, when I first saw this movie, I should say. Now that I've been a student director and I've fucked around in the woods trying to get footage while the crew is being like, can we please go home? And you know that you've not finished. I totally relate to this character. And I was watching it being like, she has done nothing wrong this entire film. They need to back her up. Um, no, but on a serious level, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, I can connect to these characters a bit more now, I think. Whereas I think maybe I, I didn't quite understand that. Because that was definitely something when I first watched it as a teen, I was like, why are they still filming? Whereas now I actually understand the whole thing of like, actually, if you've gone out there to make a documentary and you've shot diddly squat because you've been lost in the woods, like, yeah, I, I would try and bulk it out with some extra footage, you know? Yeah, and then obviously once, once like the weird shit starts happening, your first instinct would be, we should capture this on film. You know? Yeah. Like, we should document as it, what happens. And obviously as it goes along, um, the other two, so that's Mike and Josh. Yeah. Um, so uh, I can't remember which one's which, but one's the cameraman, one's the cameraman, and one's the sound man. Josh is the cameraman, and Mike is the sound operator. Okay, excellent. The um, only reason why I remember that is because later on in the movie, Josh disappears. Right. And yeah, of course. They yeah, scream yeah, his then, name yeah. a lot. <laughs> That's why I know that yeah. he is Josh. <laughs> and of course, they just couldn't resist the sound man being called Mike. I guess. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> How did I never clock that? <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so we should, whilst we're on the subject of the characters, I guess we should mention, um, when this movie came out, uh, well, first of all, Heather, Mike, and Josh are all acting under their real names. Mm-hmm. Uh, not exactly playing themselves from my, from my, uh, reading, they're all actors rather than, than crew members. Yep. Um, obviously they kind of are the crew members in this movie, but, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of blurring the lines a bit. Uh, they were also, um told when the movie was released to lie low for a few months which is uh, part of the marketing uh, strategy, I mean it's a shame that the marketing we is missing presumed dead because this movie has one of the most famous marketing campaigns of all time Right, that's kind of what sold the movie yeah, yeah, yeah. this idea of trying to play up that this was real um, so yeah the actors kind of laid low for a bit and on their IMDB pages they all had their information changed to say, because IMDB existed in 1999 it in a primitive form um, they all had their information changed to say missing presumed dead so they were adding to this air of um, mystery uh, to this film and I think the fact that they you know the credits don't say Heather played by such and such like it is just their names yeah does add this level of authenticity to it um, I mean I, I do know that uh, the actress who plays Heather Heather has um, kind of gone on record as being like it, because this movie be, ended up being so iconic, like she found it hard to get work basically because everyone wanted her to play. Oh, it's a typecast basically playing the same character over and over again. Um, interestingly, I found out in my research that she became a medical marijuana farmer after giving up acting. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, that's Good a, on you another, story for, another story for another day. Um, yeah, so kind of, I guess I should, I kind of want to get into this before we get into the the Blair Witch supernatural elements of it. Because to me, watching the movie um, last night for this, I was less focusing on the supernatural elements. Because I will say one thing that kind of I found disappointing as a teen was like, 
this is very much a movie that relies on like you never see a witch really yeah it's the you power of suggestion and yeah. the paranoia of the characters that really kind of drives the film and that's to me is what's the scariest stuff in it yeah yeah and it's all about that and I, I, something I didn't pick up on though uh, to speak of the supernatural elements the first time I watched it but definitely picked up on this time maybe I just forgot it has been many years is the supernatural element one thing that I did think was kind of interesting and well done is like the supernatural elements are definitely present throughout but they're very implied and it's dealt with in this very kind of gritty realistic way so one thing I noticed this time is like when they lose the map or rather when Mike kicks the map into the river out of frustration they um, you know they, they elect to like follow the river south right and they end up just kind of looping back round to where they've been before and it's very subtly done but every time they go in any direction they loop back around to where they were before and because they're too busy just screaming about oh we've got lost we've got lost we've got lost it kind of almost doesn't sink in on a first view or it didn't for me that like oh that's because the woods are changing like this is a supernatural environment um which is uh something that i, I maybe missed the first time but there's definitely and also like the element of the house right they say the um when they're interviewing the locals, they say the house burned down. Um, but then, obviously, it's it's present again when they get there. So there is this element of, like, the supernatural is lapping at the edges of this. That was something that I, I didn't really respond to the first time, but this time I find kind of intriguing. But I think before we get into all of that, I kind of want to get your thoughts on our three main characters. Because to me, what does really work about this film, and we might get into things that work slightly less for us later... But one thing that I think does work for me is the character stuff. Especially watching it um, with slightly more mature eyes this time around. So I guess I kind of want to get your thoughts on... Um, let's go through them. What, what do you think on, on Heather, I guess? She's kind of our protagonist, right? If you had to pick one. I think I, I'm kind of in the same camp as you, really. Where I completely understand where she's coming from. And a lot of people over the years have been very critical of Heather. Saying that you know, she's a bitch and she just tries to get her own way and all this. And I'm like, no, no, she's, you know, she's spearheading this project. And at first, you know, she is trying to sort of keep her cool. And you can see she's trying to not admit defeat when they start to get lost and such. And she, does, she digs her heels in a little bit. But at the same time, the other two are kind of getting at her a lot. And I think she's quite yeah. good at standing her ground. But like to me, I think what I like the most about her character is when she then starts to break towards the end a little bit. And I love her little spiel about how, like, why do you keep filming? She's like, this is all I have. And there's that really mm. great little moment as well where Josh uh, takes the camera and is filming her and he says, I see why you keep doing this. It's this detachment from the reality of the situation. It's like, I'm not yeah, looking at yeah. what's really happening. And again, that really says a lot about Heather's character at that point, where, yeah, she keeps filming because it's the only thing that she has to just not allow the reality of what's happening to them just completely eat away at her. Like, she has to keep focused to try and get them out of there. Whereas, you know, Josh becomes very distant and aggressive, and Mike, he goes some places. Like, that man loses yeah. his shit very quickly. <laughs> Mike goes all over the map, right? Like he's chaotic in this. Yeah, like truly um, chaotic. I think I think of the three characters, I think Heather is the most consistently interesting, and because mm. you know, she's kind of the, the focal character, really. Um, but I like her in her sort of story throughout the movie, where she's just wanting to make a documentary, 
and she kind of keeps that idea in her head the entire way through and that's kind of what sees her through and keeps her from going completely insane whereas the other two kind of succumb more to what's going on with them because they just they're just focused on getting out where she keeps focusing on the work and trying to document what's happening to them yeah 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 I think there's definitely elements of Heather's character that I thought were um, it's interesting you say people have kind of said oh she's a bitch or whatever like she definitely has that element of she's a bit overly controlling when you kind of get a sense of her character pre-crisis that she she does kind of order the boys around a bit um, and you get you get the sense that they're kind of they're okay with that until shit hits the fan really right like and uh, and you know speaking as someone who's directed many independent projects that's pretty much true of any crew if you're the director they are happy to take your shit until things start going wrong in which case they immediately turn on you but um i mean i guess that's just the role of anyone who's supposed to be in charge right but um yeah and certainly um it becomes clear how uh, i mean she has that monologue about like oh it's all my fault and you know how naive she was and stuff um that's definitely something that I, I think is true that we kind of shone through on this watch is like her naivety to begin with and the way that she's kind of you know everything will be fine we've got the map we can find out where we're going and it's like it becomes increasingly clear that none of them can read a map right but also well it's a combination of none of them can read a map but also you know the woods are moving around them yeah the elements are completely against them so like the map is completely useless and there's also like a, a theory as well that like it when Mike says he kicked the map away, like that's the influence of the witch on him as well, which is not entirely yes. substantiated in the movie, but you can kind of get that from it. Yeah, I'm not sure how much I buy into that, just because they have scenes where Mike's like calling out the fact that the map is useless anyway. Yeah, they don't know where they are. Like, um, also when when they're kind of interviewing the um, the locals at the start, like uh, you know Heather comes across. Um, I don't think she like like when they meet the the two fishermen, right? Um, who, by the way, shout out to those characters because that's the one guy who just isn't having any of it. <laughs> He's just you know, <laughs> doesn't believe in the witch, doesn't believe his mate's stories and everything. Uh, and there's the you know his mate is the classic kind of local drunk guy who's like, I saw the witch, I seen it with my own two eyes, right? Uh, yeah, I think when she doesn't realize how pushy she's being with them is something that was interesting about that scene. Like, you know, because they have the bit where she's kind of, um, you know, asking for the release form from the one guy. And, uh, you know, she goes over it and over it and over it saying, oh, sir, we have to give you full name, you have to seek consent and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's the one thing I'd definitely say about Heather in those opening scenes. Like, she has no fucking idea how to conduct an interview because she just will not let people get a word in edgewise. Yeah, yeah, she's, like, rambling all over them. Kind of... Uh, yeah, and it's it's interesting because she seems to just be kind of approaching random people and just, uh, you know, I'm not sure how uh, how great they are as interview subjects, really. Like, I, I do love the one woman who's, uh, you know, holding a child who starts to get freaked out by the, the story. <laughs> yeah, I like her. Um, that's, that's a nice little scene. Um, but yeah, you, get, you definitely get the sense that um, Heather's kind of documentary is being held together by gaffer tape and plug, right? Like... It's um, yeah. She doesn't seem to have much of an idea of like, you know. She says a few times, "Oh, we can figure this out in the edit," sort of thing, uh, which obviously, as you and I know, is the is a death knell sentence, right? It's basically a 
we can fix it in post. Yeah, because <laughs> as well, because when you think about like the, the reason why they go up into the woods in the first place is to get some footage of the like the sort of rock where those five men were found ritualistically murdered. That's the one reason. Yeah, co- coffin rock. Coffin rock. Coffin that's rock. it. Yeah, so they go there for that. Where Heather tells like the the history of that, and then they go into a cemetery, which they yes. do eventually find. They do find the cemetery. Yeah, they do. Um, yeah, so the whole thing is kind of like ill-conceived from the get-go, and uh, Heather is kind of the um, the sort of focal point of that. But before we kind of get into the other events that occur, what about um, Mike and Josh? What do you reckon to them? Um, so Josh, I think, is just... He seems like a fun kind of guy. He, he reminds you of your, your typical college stoner, really. Um, yes, yeah. And, you know, he, he screams uh, cameraman, doesn't he? <laughs> He really does. In the nice really possible does. way. Um, you can tell that him and Heather have worked together before, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but um, in the sort of extended lore of Blair Witch, um, they were a couple at one point as well, or at least were involved with one another. You don't really get yeah, that in the I th- film. Yeah, I think that kind of does come through in the film, though. Like, it definitely, um, you get the sense early on, anyway, that like Josh is kind of doing this you know, for Heather's benefit more so than for his own. Yeah, I'd agree with you in that sense. And, you know, you can tell that they have worked together previously and they do trust one another. You de- that definitely does shine through. Um, yes. I and mean, she does have the line about, because um, uh, Mike calls her out for having a two-man tent, and she says about, oh, you know, well, when I go camping, I'm not normally with two men. That's true. You know, so, and, and there's kind of a suggestive moment there. But, um yeah, so I and uh, you know, there's definitely. I mean, I kind of like that they don't make that explicit, but I definitely picked up on that both times I, I watched it without knowing the extended lore. So. Yeah, no, I, I like Josh, and I think of the three. Of, well, of the two men, should I say? Because out of the three, I think Heather is the most interesting character. But Mike is the one that I find to be like the wild card because he's the outsider, and who just gets dragged into this. So I remember. Yeah, absolutely. I remember like the first time I rewatched it, thinking, "God, he's so erratic." And then, like the more I've watched, it, I go, "No, that completely makes sense. He's agreed to this project. He'd never, he's never even met Heaven before. That's the other thing. You know, he's brought yeah, in by Josh. Yeah. So he's not only been brought into this project where everything is going to shit. They're also being stalked through the woods by God knows what. So I was like, I understand his insane paranoia and weird actions as the movie goes on. But I do like the fact that he comes through in the end. Like him, after Josh disappears, yeah. I think that there's some really good scenes between him and Heather. Yeah. He certainly, um, yeah, he makes up for his uh, early erraticness. I mean, I will say one of the best scenes in this movie is um, when Mike and Heather have like a massive row at one point. And um, he tries to, what does he try to take from her? He's trying to take the camera from her. Yes. And, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, he goes, uh, <laughs> it's actually a very well-edited moment for this movie, where he goes, like, uh, I'm going to take it from you. She goes, I'll bite you. And he goes, I'm not, if you bite me, I'll fucking... And then it just cuts to, to them, like, reconciling, presumably an hour or so later. <laughs> and she's like, I'm sorry, I bit you. Are you okay? And he's like, yeah, no, it's fine. Are you okay? <laughs> I just think it's, it's a really funny moment in the middle of all this carnage. The one moment um, that I really like, even though it's not particularly humorous, is I love the moment where they're, they're forced to camp for the night and they're just having a conversation about what food they want. It's the little sort of human touches in this film that I really like. Um, 
and just like the the little moment where Heather and Josh like have the cigarette and they just sort of Heather just embraces him. I think that's really nice. Um, I do want to talk about the supernatural stuff in a second, though. But like, what are your thoughts on the characters? Yeah, I think I broadly agree with what you said. Um, I think I can kind of understand one of the criticisms that comes up a lot of this movie is that the characters are kind of annoying. And I think that um, that's not entirely unwarranted. Uh, no. But then I think you have to remember that these are supposed to be, you know, young college age people who are not fully thinking through what they're doing and they're kind of, you know, facing the steady realisation of just how fucked they are, right? Because uh, one thing that I do think um, kind of shines through is, like, is that naivety that they all have. Because obviously the two guys kind of... They kind of turn on Heather at a few points because they're like, well, we're lost up here because of you kind of thing. Which is understandable. Um, but then there's point, Yeah, but then there's points where they have these stupid conversations where they're saying, like, oh, you know, well, if I'm missing for a few days, my girlfriend will realise and then she'll call so-and-so and they'll call so-and-so. Oh, it's so hard to get lost in America these days. All this kind of stuff. And it's like... Obviously, the fact that the movie is kind of framed as this footage has been found after their disappearance lends a kind of, like tragedy to that or like a doom laden element to that where like you know whatever happens to them they're not getting out of the woods right um, and that's kind of interesting I think that framing kind of affects the way you see the characters as well is because you know they're doomed right so it kind of lends everything that they do this kind of um, additional layer of like uh, significance or, or in some cases irony you know, like when Heather has her speech about, like, oh, it's hard to get lost in America. Like, pe- people will find us, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, when you know, when you already know that that's not the case. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, they are very much fucking lost. And there's just... Mm. I think that's the other thing as well about this movie. Like, it feels genuinely hopeless. I don't think there's a yeah. point after the sort of midpoint where you feel like these characters have any semblance of escaping. Obviously, it's, it's, no, you know, yeah. it's intrinsically built into the movie that they are doomed, but... I think it conveys that feeling really well and I think as you get towards the third act like it becomes quite an oppressive film it just yeah, it kind of yeah. really kind of weighs you down towards the end I think especially like when you have seen like the famous monologue scene from uh, Heather which is obviously parodied up and down uh, when this movie came out but it's still very effective in the film itself that sense of like she's so fucked at this point that she's just leaving a message saying, like, I'm sorry that, like, got us into this mess, you know? Like, there's not even an element of, if there's anybody out there, can you help us? It's, like, it's literally just, I'm sorry that this happened, <laughs> you know? Um, and it gets to that point, right, where, like, like, as you say, kind of in the third act, the sense of despair kind of washes over the characters and the film because it gets to a point where they're not even arguing amongst themselves anymore. Like, they're just quietly trying to comfort each other as he said it gets very um it gets very bleak yeah and especially like the with that famous monologue scene as well because what happens prior to that uh because we should also just say like in terms of the story for people who are listening who may have not seen the movie and again why um is mm. that around the sort of start of the third act josh goes missing he just disappears in the night because prior to this, yes. um, during one of the attacks during the night, and again, we'll discuss this in sort of better detail when we go into the more sort of supernatural element, uh, Josh is seemingly being targeted by whatever is pursuing them. And so Josh goes missing one night, and then it's just Mike and Heather. 
and then after they have they're forced to camp again for the night heather wakes up in the morning and finds this like bundle of twigs wrapped in josh's shirt and she takes it away from the tent because it's obviously freaking the pair of them out and then later heather goes and undoes the bundle of sticks and finds this blood-soaked bag which has got teeth and a bit of a tongue in it and you know obviously it's fucking horrific but she doesn't tell mike what she finds in there because she knows that if she tells him it's only gonna make him worse and i think that's what makes that little monologue scene all the more sad is that like she's kind of bearing the burden of knowing josh is dead yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah I, I think that monologue scene is fantastic, and especially, you know, kudos to Heather because that is an unflattering angle. And the sheer amount of yes. snot that pours out of that woman's nose is. Yeah, par- parodied in one of the scary movies. <laughs> yeah. right, but, um... <laughs> it's a much more crass effect, obviously, but. Mm. Yeah, you really feel yeah. her, like, just complete emotional torture in that scene. Yeah, and that's definitely something that I think um, came through a lot more on this viewing is the, uh, yeah, the characters kind of slowly coming to realise or coming to grips with their situation, even though they don't know exactly what's going on, because obviously throughout the movie they kind of posit theories about what might be happening, like, oh, it's someone fucking with them, or or, or it is the Blair Witch. Um, At first they kind of don't really want to believe that it might be uh, literally supernatural. Then obviously, I kind of like the way that they sort of uh, Josh especially. He seems to be kind of like, yeah, it's probably a witch, but is also kind of like, look, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about that. You know, he's yeah. just kind of like, because <laughs> there's that point where they kind of say like, oh, either it's um, people fucking with us, or it's, and he just kind of cuts them off, and he goes like, well, either way, you know, whether it's that or it's that, I don't want to stay here and find out. You know, and um, rightly so. To which to be fair, I'm with him on that. <laughs> yeah. Like, Either it's a witch or it's people willing to go that far into the woods to pretend to be a witch. Either way, no thanks. Yeah, because a lot of people um, talk about the different theories around what this movie is about. Because, I mean, I've always read it as it is a supernatural occurrence. Because, yeah, there's enough that happens in the movie that really supports that. However, there is one theory that Mike and Josh murder Heather. I don't, I don't really subscribe to that one myself. And the other theory is that it is the, the two sort of rednecks that are pursuing them throughout the movie. Now, this is an interesting one because that almost was the end of the film. Mm. Um, da- Daniel uh, Mirick and Eduardo Sanchez, who wrote and directed this movie, uh, on the record are saying that originally those two uh, fishermen we're going to turn out to be kind of pranking the teens and uh, possibly with the intent of murdering them. But um, they decided against it because it was too much like a Scooby-Doo episode. Which, there was. yeah, I get that. It would also completely cheapen the rest of the movie, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where, like, I think, obviously what frustrated me about this as, as a younger viewer is, like, there is no definitive resolution to this movie right like we've obviously talked about the fact that there's this kind of implied supernatural element but you could watch this movie without that being the case and just kind of be like well yeah the events that happened are just them going insane right like i think obviously there's stuff that's harder to explain like when they get to the the murder house in the woods that supposedly burned down hundreds of years ago or whatever um that's a little harder to explain if you go by the non-supernatural element. Obviously, the, the bundle of sticks as you, well with the teeth in it, that's kind of hard to explain away. 
Yes, by the way, those are real teeth procured from a Maryland doc, uh, dentist. Yeah, I heard about that. Um, it might also be worth just sort of quickly delving into the actual production of this movie. So people who are listening might not be aware that not only did the actors shoot the movie, but they didn't really have much of a script. Like, every day they would just wake up to find little envelopes outside the tent, which would tell each of them what their character was, what their motivation throughout the day was, and certain things they would need to do. And they were told to not clue the other actors in on what was happening, and just to let the story unfold organically. Which, again, you can really see that in the way the movie progresses, in the way the characters talk to one another. It doesn't feel like a heavily scripted movie. There's, there's a lot of room for improvisation. Yes. And the scenes in which they are waking up and discovering uh, twig figures and rock formations and blue jankum and so on, um, they were literally just woken up in the morning and shown that, essentially, or left to, dis- left to discover it for themselves. Um, so this was kind of an immersive experience for the actors. And I just want to point out that in doing a little reading for this, it transpired that the producer of this film, uh, I believe uh, Greg Hale, um, he was saying that like, the idea for that kind of immersive experience came from his days in the army, where I don't know what faction of the army he was in, but as part of their boot camp training, essentially, they would take new cadets out into the woods and have them be quote-unquote hunted by some of the uh, people who'd been there a little longer. And literally, it was that situation where they'd have to just kind of make it through the woods as a training exercise, and like they, they didn't know when people were going to come for them or whatever. So that's basically what they inflicted on these poor actors for this movie. <laughs> like, when the tent is being shaken and when they're hearing noises and all this kind of stuff, that's all really happening, and they don't know when the sound's going to come, when there's going to be, you know, interfering with the tent, or when there's going to be whatever, right? Like, they're pretty much improvising off of the producers and the directors fucking with them. Yeah, and also, like, it is worth noting as well that the producers and directors were never that far away from them, and supposedly, despite the film looking like they're so completely deep in the woods, they were never more than, like, a five-minute walk from, like, a major road or anything like that. They, yeah. The actors were looked after to a degree. Apparently there was, like, an agreed sort of, like, safety word between the three of them that if any of them ever had to... Uh, bow out or had to do anything like the three of them would all agree to drop character and I believe there was one instance where they had to put the actors up in a hotel room for the night because I think one of them injured themselves or something like that yeah, um, yeah. so but other than that they, they, they were roughing it you know they were actually camping setting the tent up and all that kind of stuff and yeah again, like you don't see that in a lot of movies these days I mean I, I think modern health and safety uh, procedures would forbid yeah, this well, kind of movie being made these days. Even at the time, I mean, even at the time, you could only get away with this as an indie production. Yeah, absolutely. And this movie is kind of the indiest of indie productions. I mean, it's all shot on a fucking camcorder, for God's sake. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of uh, people who have analysed this movie have said this, and I completely agree that I think going into this movie with that context is. It definitely helps you to appreciate the film a lot more because it really does help solidify the fact that these actors were fucking terrified at certain points of this movie. I mean, mm. take that bit where they wake up in the middle of the night and just hear children laughing in the woods. Like, I can't imagine anything more fucking terrifying than that. Yeah, that'd be terrifying. Um, there are some production details that make this film slightly hilarious, though. Uh, one of which is um, when Josh disappears. The reason he disappears so early on it's because that guy had to go and work on another movie for a bit, like down the road. <laughs> so they had, they just had to lose him for a few days. I also heard which, as well um, that he wasn't aware when he'd be leaving. 
he was just sort of yeah, taken. Yeah. And apparently his first reaction was, sweet, there's a Jane's Addiction concert that I really want to go to. So he was able to go to that <laughs> concert, which I think is quite fun. Um, nice. But I, I, I... Do you also know the thing about how you were supposed to see the Blair Witch? I do know this, yes. Yeah, so the iconic... You can, you can regale the audience with it. Yeah, so the iconic bit that's parodied where they run out of the tent and Heather's running through the woods and then Josh is running after with the camera and it's obviously it's like this great scene where you hear the, the children laughing and then the tent gets shaken and they just book it. And there's a bit where Heather screams, what the fuck is that? And originally, Josh was supposed to pan the camera across. It wasn't like a pre... Um, pre-planned thing they just assumed he would do it but he didn't but they actually had somebody stood within the woods with a white dress on and like a ski mask i'm assuming like a balaclava or something like that to obscure Mm. their face yeah and so heather sees that and screams what the fuck is that and josh was supposed to catch a glimpse of it on camera but never did yeah so i find it interesting that the filmmakers were going to give us a brief glimpse of the blair witch but it's a very happy accident that they never did yeah, um, so I can add a little more to that. Uh, so the figure that they would have seen was uh, art director Ricardo Moreno, and he was apparently wearing white long johns, white stockings, and white pantyhose pulled over his head. <laughs> so, um, See, I read a God knows what that was. I read. Well, this is what this is according to uh, the producer. So I don't know. Maybe there's some uh, lost in translation there. I don't possibly. Know, but, yeah, but. Um, Still. But God only knows what that would have looked like. <laughs> I mean, it sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no shit. If I saw that in the woods and wasn't expecting to see it, I would run in the opposite direction. But, uh, yeah, so I think that's that. I mean, um, we can talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the famous ending. They go into the spooky house. I think that is, um, which is one of the most effective parts of the movie. Like, as, uh, the few times I've watched it recently, every time they go into that fucking house, I'm like, no, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you? It's a great set. Um, I mean, it's got all the, you know, the children's, like, presumably bloody handprints That's on the That's my favourite detail, say- because it's quite subtle as well. They don't linger on it for mm. very long. It's just as soon as yeah, you it's see made it... S- it's made slightly less horrifying when you know the context that they got um, just a bunch of local kids and some hand paint and they went mental for a few hours. <laughs> and that's how they achieved that effect. And apparently all the children involved had a cracking time. <laughs> so um, I'm glad. It's made slightly less terrifying by that. But, it is, but like, that is... I remember watching this not long ago with a friend um, who... Uh, I think I've mentioned her on the show before, but she wanted to get into horror movies, so I've been sort of slowly introducing her, and uh, she requested we watch The Blair Witch Project. And uh, okay. we were quite sort of early into her horror education, and I do remember saying, are you sure? Because, like, this film is quite creepy. Um, and I can remember her audibly reacting to seeing the handprints on the staircase. So I, I, yeah. I enjoyed seeing that. Because <laughs> we should say, yeah, this house is supposedly the house where the serial killer murdered all the kids for um, for the Blair Witch. And one thing we do learn about the, the killer is that he supposedly would take children two at a time, uh, make one, take them down to the basement, make one face the wall, and then murder the one, murder the other one, and then do the one that was facing the wall. So when we get to the basement level, we see that Mike is already there, and he's been made to face the wall by his figure unseen. 
and uh, that's when obviously we get the the thing that ends pretty much every fan footage horror movie the camera suddenly drops and uh, unspecified horrific events happen presumably Heather and Mike's gruesome murders at the hands of the Blair, of the Blair Witch um and I'm, so that's kind of that. I'm like, sorry, go on. I'm gonna say definitely gruesome murders because earlier in the movie, uh, after Josh first disappears, the and yeah, this is a scene that genuinely makes like the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because I, again, I I think it's because with all those sort of scary moments in this movie, I really do kind of put myself in the character's shoes where they wake up in the middle of the night and they hear Josh's pained screams emanating from the woods. Yes, yeah, and it's so yeah. disturbing. Because you know they keep saying like it's coming from over here. No, it's coming from over here, and like he just yeah, he sounds like he's being tortured. Okay, so before we kind of wrap up and Kino or Inferno this bad boy, one thing that I wanted to bring up because I think it's also a direct contrast with the Borderlands. The Borderlands is um, this movie uh, is obviously normally talked about as a, a found footage film. But I want to posit that this and the Borderlands have one other horror subgenre in common. I would say they're both modern examples of folk horror. 100%. What yes. say you to that? No, completely. Yes. Um, and they're both very sort of specific types of folk horror as well, because um, Blair Witch is very much leaning into like American folklore and like um, mm. particularly sort of like more sort of pagan imagery. Although you know the Borderlands will will get to that. Um, uh, yeah, it's sort of tying more into yes. you know like local legends and urban legends and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, they're kind of riffing on that kind of stuff, and I think that is another reason why the horror is as effective as it is, is because it feels yeah. very grounded and very real in that sense. Like it's and it has that classic folk horror thing of like, uh, this is something that kind of stood out to me more on this viewing was like, it's these very modern for the time people who kind of think they know what they're doing and they think they've got a handle on. The kind of wildness around them, but like, the, you know, the movie, like like all folk horror, is really about them slowly realizing that the thing that's tormenting them is older than them, knows better than them, more powerful than them, you know, more powerful than them, and they are, you know, well, essentially they are powerless to stop it, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of the idea. It's this evil that's been around for forever, you know. Yeah, I think this movie really leans into that as well because, you know, the three of them, they are completely powerless and it's powerless in, like, again, in the very modern sense like a lot of what these movies do because, you know, they don't have cell phones or at least if they do, they don't work. Yeah. You know, they try to rely on older methods and that's quickly taken away from them as well. Well, that's something that makes this movie a time capsule is when they're talking about, um, oh, you know, I won't have called my girlfriend for three days so she'll, she'll start to worry. Yeah, obviously nowadays you just go well why wouldn't they just text her but obviously <laughs> they don't have cell phones to hand or you know um, I, so. I, I think the yeah the sort of the folk horror stuff especially when they go into the woods and there's all the stick figures hanging from the trees like again that is something that if you stumbled across that you would turn and fucking walk back I'd be like I yeah. don't want to know who put these here. I don't want to know who made these. I don't know what these are. You know, I don't want to know what they represent. I just want to get the fuck out of here. Um, yeah, as someone who grew up uh, in a rural adjacent setting, if you see that shit in the woods, I mean, it's not a witch, but you should definitely about face. Yeah, you should be fearful of whoever put those things there. Um, I yeah, did just want yeah. to quickly ask as well, um, because it's, it relates to this very briefly. Did you watch the alternate endings that I mentioned to you off mic? 
I forgot. That's fine. So there's, um, I'll quickly summarize them because I don't think any of them are as good as the one that's actually in the movie. Um, mm. But they are essentially just different things that Heather sees when she goes around the corner. That's all it is. Um, okay. So in one instance, um, it's Mike still staring at the corner, but the stick figure's hanging from the basement. Well, hanging from the ceiling, should I say. So yeah, that's the first ending. Uh, so there's just all the stick figures there. There's a different version of that where she goes around the corner and all the stick figures are there, but Mike is levitating in the middle of the room. Okay. Which is obviously explicitly supernatural, and I don't quite care for that one. Um, mm. The other one that um, stands out to me is uh, where she goes around the corner and Mike is staring directly at her. Right, okay. Which is pretty darn creepy, all things considered. And then there's the probably the most shocking one, but also the one that doesn't make as much sense, where she goes around the corner and Mike is swinging from a noose from the ceiling. Like, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, how but, that uh, would suddenly happen. I think the ending that's actually in the movie is perfect, and is, you know, it fits very well. Yeah, where he's turned to face the wall, yeah, because it implies that whatever's doing the killing is in the room with them. Exactly. Whereas... Yeah, I, I like that. But again, I do think the one where she goes around the corner and Mike is just stood in the in the corner staring at her, there is something quite unsettling about that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that whole final sequence is genuinely quite upsetting, uh, unsettling. Um, you know, I mean, it's obviously it's kind of a trope now, the whole night vision cameras and all the rest of it. But in this movie, it is quite effective. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think on that bombshell, we should kind of give our final thoughts and Kino or Inferno this sucker. Uh, Mark, what do you reckon? So, unsurprisingly, it's a, a Kino from me. I do really, really enjoy this film. Uh, I don't want to go as far as say I'm on the verge of really kind of loving it. I wouldn't put it amongst my very favourite horror movies, but if I'm in the mood to be creeped out by a movie, this is probably one of the ones that I'd go to because it, it does consistently freak me out in places. Yeah, I think I'm kind of with you. I don't know if... I mean, look, I'm going to give this keynote, if only because of its influence in general. I do think most of the films that kind of uh, were a takeoff on this, were ripping this off maybe, are significantly less effective. Uh, so, like, if you look at the paranormal activities, for example. Which, by the way, I forgot to mention this factoid, uh, speaking of paranormal activity... So, they, the filmmakers uh, tried to take this film to Miramax, and uh, Miramax, they were turned down by the man at Miramax. Now, do you know who the man at Miramax turned out to be, who was responsible for that decision? It was Mr. Jason Blum, is why I bring oh, it up. Oh, okay, that's AKA, a far less sinister direction than what I was thinking. Yeah, no, I wasn't talking about people we probably don't really want to talk mm. about. I was talking more in terms of irony here, because he went on to produce the Paranormal Activity films. And obviously is now head of Blumhouse Productions in general. Um, yeah, so he turned this movie down, thinking that it didn't have... Uh, basically, it wasn't commercial enough, I think was the idea. Um, which is kind of hilarious, because it seems to me that he's made a fortune ripping this movie off in the years since. Yeah, with a string of highly inferior movies. Uh, I, I think the yeah. first Paranormal Activity is a movie that I respect more than I actually like. I appreciate that it's super low budget and it was a big success and it's got some creativity to it, but the fact that they strung it out with so many fucking sequels is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, back to Blair Witch. 
I have to say, I think this is a movie that I kind of... I, I would kind of say I kind of respect more than I, I like, I think. Um, I enjoyed re-watching it for the first time in a while. It's definitely held up better than I thought it would. And my opinion of it is definitely higher than it was prior to this rewatch. I think there's a lot to criticise this movie for, though, which we didn't really get into. And I think that is um, basically, as is the case with a lot of fan footage films, in my opinion, I do think this would have been better served as like a 40-minute short rather than a feature-length film, because there is a lot of stuff which is just them running around in the woods that you can barely see, because they've got the camera pointed to the ground that's shaking around like... Like fuckery. That's, yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. I mean, it lends to the realism of the piece, admittedly, and it's—I uh, think it's a pretty well-paced movie, and all you know, all things considered, because it's only like what eighty-one it minutes. Is. Like, it's a very it breeze, it's a breezy watch. Yeah, it, it is. But I'm always of the opinion that if you can if you can whittle something down to a more punchy format, then you probably should. That said, um, you know, I think for the most part, it holds together pretty well. I think. This movie was pretty well served by its marketing campaign and the whole trying to convince people that it was real and all the rest of it. Like, I think that uh, kind of mystique that they were able to build around it with early viral marketing and stuff definitely helped this movie. And I helped, I think it helps it stick in the mind of people of our generation. Let's say, like, it kind of has an extra, an extra little like, ooh, remember that it was so spooky and all the rest of it. I do think. And this is not necessarily a critique of the film, but I think when people think back to the sensationalism and the spookiness of this film, they are more thinking of the marketing than the film itself. Yeah, the legacy. Which is not to say the film, film itself is yeah. Which is not to say that the film itself is not atmospheric. I do think there are stretches of this movie where my attention was waning. However, I am gonna give it a fairly unqualified kino, if only because I do think it is probably still to this day the best example of a found footage horror film okay i mean certainly the most inf- certainly the most influential yeah absolutely um i wouldn't put it as my pick for the best found footage movie um i've always kind of gone with wreck personally um yeah i mean i like wreck but i don't find it um I don't find it as committed to realism. No, as no, yeah, as I mean, I you kind of have to sort of throw logic out the window yeah. at certain points. But yeah, this one, I think, because I, I don't really, I don't really even count Wreck as like a as a found footage film. Really, I kind, I kind of count it as like it's a take on a zombie film more so than a found footage film. Yeah, I know it is a found footage film. That's a fair, film. fair whack on it. I think, yeah. 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 Uh, but no, I think this one, um, the the one thing about this one that makes me really enjoy it above the others is yeah, the realism of it. It feels very genuine and the the terror mm. that the actors are experiencing you can tell that that's genuine you know and you don't get that with yeah. a lot of these other movies you don't get this sense of like there's real doom and gloom and bleakness it's kind of just you know a lot of the found footage movies mm. are content with sh- like shitty cheap jump scares there isn't really any jump scares in this movie it's all you know yeah suspense and you know building of tension and it's yeah i just i don't know this is a horror film yeah. that really does it for me and you know i find consistent i think like a lot of the films that kind of knock this off kind of i mean paranormal activity we've riffed on a little bit but like that is the a prime example they're kind of very like generic kind of ghosty movies and stuff whereas i think what this movie has going for it is it kind of taps into this like american kind of gothic sensibility like 
there's almost a touch of like Lovecraftian elements to it. I mean, we've talked about the folk horror thing, but there is also this kind of like this fear of the unknown and this fear of like, well, the, you know, the incomprehensible, right? Because essentially, whatever the Blair Witch is, its nature is mercurial to some degree, right? Like no one can really seem to agree on who or what this entity actually is. Um, and there's also that element which is very Lovecraftian of like the the environment is almost corrupted by the presence of this thing. Like the the normal rules of nature don't apply in these woods, right? Because like we've said before, any direction you go in you end up in the same spot. There's this kind of like sense of the dawning madness, which I think this film really digs into. Whereas a film like Paranormal Activity is more about watching doors open and close suddenly, you know? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I feel that. I think one of the things that I I did notice on this watch as well, and I think really feeds into what you were saying about like how the environment has been corrupted by this evil, there's a lack of wildlife. There's, yes, there aren't a lot of wildlife noises. Yeah, like you don't really get a sense that there's anything living within these woods. It's almost like when they get past a certain point, like when they go past those fishermen it becomes like the Blair Witch's domain. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah, it's it's not a forest anymore. It's this kind of eldritch location. And yeah, we do get from the interviews with the locals at the beginning where they do talk about how like oh no no one goes up there. You know, nobody goes near it. They yeah, know yeah. not to go near there. Um and again I think, you know, that's just playing into that folklore thing, like every small town has like mm. that place where something bad happened or that place that yeah, people don't and that's, go. Yeah, it's totally folklore, and it's totally... Like I've mentioned Lovecraft, but that's also a total trope that Lovecraft uses, that thing of like, oh, you don't go up there, young master, there's all sorts of evil. Folk don't like it. You know, that's always yeah. a trope in those stories. So I think it kind of plays into all of that stuff. Um, yeah, and I think this movie is certainly the most kind of iconic use of that uh, found footage kind of gimmick, if you like, the conceit. Yeah. So. Anyway, that's the Blair Witch Project. Shall we move on to your choice? Yes. Marky McMark Mark. The Borderlands. As we... Yes, as we wait for the marketing woo to return. Will he ever come back? I hope so. I'm losing a lot of blood. Yeah, and we need advice on how to market the pod from the woods. Yeah. So, the Borderlands. Yes, the Borderlands. <laughs> Yeah, ask this fellow here. Yeah. He looks like an agreeable local bumpkin type. Hi, uh, can you tell us where the church is, Randy? Yeah, like, you know, it's a big pointy building with a spire on top. Please be quiet. Now we're going to examine the altar. Here's the crucifix. Must cross-check crucifix against video footage. Deacon, what we saw up there was not normal. After a supposed miracle happens in a rural English church, three men are sent in by order of the Vatican to investigate. These men are Gray, a brash and foul-mouthed tech guy, Mark, a buttoned-up man of the cloth, and Deacon, a booze-addled man whose faith is only just hanging on by a thread. The three men are initially sceptical of the footage they have seen, but as each night progresses, they bear witness to a string of horrifying supernatural occurrences that indicate something far more sinister is at play. Mm. So, Aiden. Mark. You hadn't seen The Borderlands, had you? I had not, no. 
I don't think I'd even heard of it until you suggested it for this episode. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting, because I, I know this one's sort of done the rounds with the, the film guys, especially the horror guys, you know, mm. the, every time they sort of, you know, are let out of the, the several confines in which they're kept, they tend to talk about how good this movie is, so I was surprised you hadn't heard of it. I maybe had, but I'd forgotten about it, I don't know. As I said, found footage is not my thing, so it's probably one of those things that came up in a few lists, but I kind of just skipped over it because found footage. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the same. Like, I don't actively seek out found footage movies. What turned me on to this movie was actually Mark Commode. Um, he did an episode of his uh, Commode Uncut like, yeah. personal blog thing that he used to do. And uh, somebody asked him the question of, what was the last film you saw that genuinely scared you? And he actually said The Borderlands. Uh, so I immediately was like, well, if Mark Commode said it scared him, this might be worth a look. Because obviously, you know, he's one of the only sort of true mainstream critics who actually champions the genre and he knows his shit. So I was like, you know what, I'll give it a go based on Commode's recommendation. And uh, I was very, very pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I'm sure the listeners know by now, but it's uh, there might be new listeners to this Spooky Woods episode. Um, our tradition is that when one of us hasn't seen the film before, uh, they will not give their thoughts until they're on the pod. And I've stuck rigidly to that. I have not given you my opinion on this until now. Mm-hmm. So, please, my dear AD Cakes, lay it upon me. So, 2013's The Borderlands, directed by somebody. Uh, I have it up here in the notes, so let me just get onto the page. Uh, Elliot Goldner is his name. Elliot Goldner. Written and directed Who is, by, I believe. Yeah, and also he's not really of note, and I mean that in the sense of he doesn't actually have a Wikipedia page. So I can't tell you anything else yes, about Yes, I that. believe this is his feature debut. Uh, I read that the producer of this had worked on some short films with uh, Elliot Goldner before. Um, so, yeah... Do with that information what you will. Uh, yeah, so what I think about this movie... Do you know, it's it's an interesting one. Because as we've said, I don't care for uh, found footage as a gimmick, as a genre, uh, typically speaking. However, I found something compelling about this movie. I think, first of all, um, it kind of has an element that Blair Witch has of like... This is a movie made by and for filmmakers in the sense that obviously the first character we're introduced to, as you alluded to in your uh, introduction, is the character of Grey, who is the cameraman, general techie, kind of Johnny-on-the-spot type guy. Um, and he is very much, I mean, we've all met this guy. If you've worked in yeah. film in any capacity, <laughs> you have met this yeah. guy. And it's very, you know, it's a very well-observed character. And I think like he provides enough of a context for there to be camera equipment involved in the film. Obviously, we find out the reason that so they not only have to have their the home that they're staying in or the house that they're staying in uh, completely rigged with um, CCTV. They also rig the church with CCTV, um, as well as having their head-mounted mics. Um, and that's something that I, I kind of I like that they took the time to explain why, that like this is apparently uh, the procedure for these Vatican uh, in investigations. I don't know if that's true in real life, but in the universe of the film, certainly. Um, but I also like that the technology they use actually comes into play. This isn't just a case of, 
oh, it's characters running around with a camcorder and everything's blurry and all the rest of it. Like, the various, like, sound gadgets, uh, like the radio mics, for example, play, take, a, um, take an important role. And there's all this different kind of technology that is very recognisable. Um, you know, if you are a filmmaker or if you are a techie on this kind of stuff, but I like that it actually it had a narrative function beyond just, oh, we wanted to shoot a cheap horror film, so let's make it found footage. You know, it all kind of, um, in a way, it all kind of revolves around this idea of, like, technology versus the supernatural, right? Um, yeah, and I think this movie... Yeah, the old and the new, and yeah. the, the contrast between the two, yeah. And I think this movie gets away with some of the stuff that I normally don't like about found footage, um, when we get to the ending, I do have some questions about how this footage was ever salvaged. That, um, I, I knew that this would come up, actually, so I which do believe I know... You, you know is my big issue yeah. with every fan footage movie, that's why. Yeah, because you're not the first person to ask me this, because I've shown this movie to a couple of people, and I believe, even though it's not explicitly stated in the movie... Mm. Um, I mean, I can just tell you now if you want. Yeah, go on then. So, I, from what I'm led to believe... Um, the head cams and the CCTV footage is all linked up to a server. Okay, well that's fine. That's all the explanation I need then. Yeah, so supposedly all of this footage is constantly being uploaded to a server, so therefore it's accessible footage. Fair enough. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, we could maybe question whether the footage shot in the depths of that pagan sacrificial altar would have made it to the server, but fair enough. Um... I mean, yeah, we have to suspend a little bit of disbelief when we get to that part of the movie. Yeah, and it's certainly not as egregious as other examples. Because, um, of course, there is the element in this movie that maybe covers some of that, where it is implied that this presence that is haunting the church slash pagan uh, sacrificial altar is kind of willing them to find out about It's like willing them to discover it, right, is the impression you get. Um, it's never explicitly stated, but there seems to be an element of, like, it's in some... Because you never explicitly find out... Um, so we should say, before we kind of go a bit more in-depth into the plot, it transpires that this church was built on an old pagan site of ritual, as many churches were. Um, but there was this, uh, you know, sacrificial element to it, where there was this god, the name of which is lost to time, but that, you know, would demand infant sacrifice, is essentially what we're led to believe. Um, and it seems to be that this god is kind of drawing our protagonists towards it to discover it, is the impression that I got. So I can kind of, even though I have some questions about, like, the mechanics of how certain pieces of footage ended up on that server, um, I think you can kind of sweep it under the rug by kind of going, like, well, the creature wants to be found in this instance. It wants to draw yeah, people absolutely. towards it. it. It's not doing a good job of hiding itself, in a no. sense. <laughs> well, it's not trying to hide, is the impression that I got. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, one thing I will say, so I think what I'm going to say, just to kind of kick the conversation off, is like, yeah, I think I broadly enjoyed this film, even making allowances for it being in a subgenre that I don't particularly care for. Uh, I think the performances were strong enough to carry me through. Um, one thing that I think... Uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, it kind of does the classic, um, is it real, is it just trickery, and a lot of the stuff they're doing obviously kind of ties into this idea of 
filmmaking and budget filmmaking and stuff. So like a lot of the stuff they because I actually listened to an interview with um, uh, one of the producers and one of the special effects guys, and they were talking about part of the fun of this movie is obviously the two priests. Um, uh, they are, you know, they, they investigate these so-called miracles the world over. So they're kind of jaded at this point. They sort of know the tricks of the trade when people are faking it. And they, they, they were kind of saying that the um, the fun of this movie is like, they're talking about, oh, it could be this thin piece of fishing wire that pulls stuff off the table and, and things like this. Or, like, oh, they, you could conceal a speaker under here and that would rattle the, uh, you know, the foundations or whatever. These are all tricks that they actually did use whilst making this film. So there's this kind of extra element of like, there's almost a joy of the mechanics and the kind of figuring out how to build these illusions that I do think really, really shines through in this movie. And I think kind of makes yeah. it special within this genre, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I would agree. Um, there's a lot that I like about this movie. Um, one thing that I mentioned to you off mic um which really stands out to me is compared to a lot of other films in its genre, the way in which the presentation is put together, where you have it's predominantly CCTV cameras and three head-mounted cameras. Yes. It feels very non-intrusive and it does allow for the scares to develop quite organically and even it allows for certain conceits like the scenes where the characters are sat in the pub just having conversations they've just taken their head cam off and are just resting it on the table and they've been told that they have to document the entire thing so it just seems natural that they probably take the camera off and just have it on the table and yeah, and even they, though it's set up fairly well for a shot in a movie it still feels very natural yeah and they introduced that concept early doors right where it's like whoever their boss is has kind of said you have to film like every second that you're awake basically and I think they kind of get away with that conceit by having the characters kind of be visibly annoyed by it and kind of be bitching about it and mm -hmm. stuff. Um, yeah, and it also means you get the benefit of, because they're head-mounted cameras, you get a lot of POV stuff, so it really puts you in the character yes, shoes I was actually when thinking, the scary um, shit's happening. As you well know, I'm a big fan of the classic Channel 4 sitcom Peep Show. Um, yes. I would not be shocked to learn that the director of this was a fan, to be honest, because... You are not the first person to make that assumption, I can tell you that much. It's quite a common um, reading of this movie, and especially due to like the sense of humour that this film has in parts, yeah, it sure, feels very yeah. peep show. Yeah, because yeah, it has that kind of uh, slightly cynical, slightly grotty British vibe to it. Definitely, and I mean that's one thing that we were both saying off mic is we both appreciate how thoroughly British this movie is, down to like you know Grey as a character and like mm. that proper like country bumpkin setting where you know it's it's either just you know, delirious old people or the worst kind of youths imaginable. Yeah, there are some scummy youths in this movie. <laughs> Truly scummy. Like, worse than Eden Lake level scummy we're talking here. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's a movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely think as well, like, whether or not they were directly influenced by Peep Show, I think they must have... They must have looked to it for inspiration just because I happen to know a little... Have, having listened to this... Uh, um, interview i happen to know that some of the techniques they used uh, to give the impression of first person camera shooting when actually it was like shoulder mounted or it was shot from behind yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. thing, are stuff that they started to develop as the seasons of peep show went on because in the early seasons of that show they did use gopros mounted to the camera to the actors heads but then that proved to be pretty unworkable for the most part so they they found ways to fake it basically 
Um, yeah. Which seems to be the case in this movie as well. I mean, they admitted as much in this interview. They were like, yeah, a lot of the footage that's taken from the supposedly head-mounted cameras is actually, like I say, shoulder-mounted or over the shoulder or just to the side of the actor or whatever. Yeah, and again, I'm fine with that because it it means it's easier to get into the movie, I mm-hmm. think. like it's the, the presentation is really quite crisp for a low-budget movie, especially yeah. a movie that's trying to do this whole fan footage thing. Yeah, it's, and that's something that seemed to be very important to the people who made this, is like, if, if we're doing fan footage, that's not an excuse to just make a badly shot movie. Yeah, and that's the thing. And I could never say this movie's badly shot. I think the CCTV shots, they're all very purposeful yeah. and do provide some of the most genuinely unsettling parts of the film as well. And that's a great conceit as well because it allows them to go from the first person to a wide. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I think as well the fact that um, one thing this movie does that a lot of found footage movies do not do, not only does it actually take you through the technology they're wearing, they're using, it specifically, you know, they specifically say like, oh, it's this make of camera, it's this make of camera and they kind of take you through the capabilities of it. They specifically show the characters setting up the CCTV setup, so it yep. gives you a real sense of, like literally the first scene or the first couple of scenes, is Grey setting up the CCTV in, in the house that they're staying in, and then shortly after that, Grey and um, what's the not Mark the other one, the Deacon, guy. Deacon of course, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, it's Gray and Deacon going to the church to set up CCTV there. So it shows you the angles that you're going to be studying throughout the rest of the movie. And I think mm-hmm. it really... Like, when you see the kind of CCTV footage of the church after they've left, and the spooky goings-on going, going on, it kind of um, it adds something to it that is like, you know where the cameras are, you know what the space is you know where things are coming from, if you see what I mean. Like, it kind of... It has well, it really more of a sense turns the church of, into its own character, doesn't it? Yeah, and it just kind of gives everything a more tangible sense of, like, stuff happening, you know? Whereas I think a lot of movies of this kind, they just feel kind of cobbled together, held together by gaffer tape. Whereas this, as you say, it feels purposeful. It feels more... Um, yeah, it feels more selective on the shots that it's using. Especially whenever it cuts to there's just the CCTV shots of the church at night, they're just inherently creepy. Um, like when you just have that wall with all the plastic sheeting down it, where it's just this wide CCTV shot of at night, there is a breeze blowing the plastic sheeting ever so slightly, and you're not quite sure where that's coming from. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, yeah, it's 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 surprisingly subtle in parts as well, which I quite like. Um, I do want to ask, did you find this film in any way creepy or scary? Um, hmm. That's an interesting question. I, I jumped it in a couple of moments, I'll say that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I necessarily say if I found this film scary, but then I think this is kind of um, a trap that people fall into when they're talking about horror movies, right? It's like, I, you know, scary is kind of a relative term. Like, I can watch a film like, okay, so what I'm getting at is like, Films like this don't really scare me because I don't believe in the supernatural in any way. So there's an yeah. element of, like, it's just an entertaining story to me. Now, there are ghost stories that are genuinely a bit creepy or they get at something that is kind of unsettling. And that's kind of the thing that I would say about this movie. I don't know if I was necessarily watching it and was terrified, but 
there is this sense of unease throughout the movie that I think is very well um, is very well put across. I would say more so than I would find it like, oh my god, my heart is racing. It's just kind of this thing of like, where is this going? What you know? I wouldn't say I found this film terrifying. It definitely spooked me the first time I watched it. I watched it with mm. a friend of the podcast, uh, Mr. Andrew Drummond, and I just I think it. It shows again, like how well put together it is. Is where every time it cut to nighttime, I instantly got just this sinking, foreboding feeling because yeah, I yeah. knew every time it went to nighttime, I was like, something is going to happen in this church, and I was always curious to know what was going to happen next. I think that's kind of where it really works for me. Is like the mystery of what's going on is actually quite compelling. Yeah, I agree with that, and it unfolds quite quite well because you know the i think another thing i would say as well is like this film does actually have a fair bit of story to it and it does a lot with its characters in the short space of time that you do spend with them yeah see this is something that i wanted to get at and we'll maybe get into the a to b of the plot um later but i think where this film really does excel particularly within the found footage genre is that thing of the characters actually do develop and they do feel like yeah. well-rounded characters before they even appear, right? So just to take us through it, so we have um, Grey, who is sort of our everyman such, such as there is, right, in this movie, um, who's kind of the techie we've said before. Uh, we kind of It kind of finds out that he's working for um, uh, this organisation that they call the Congregation, right? Uh, but he's kind mm. of working there on uh, not exactly false pretenses, but... He's not really a Christian, we kind of find out as it goes along. He says a few times that he believes in stuff, and um, there's this kind of irony that he's the one who gets the most freaked out by the supernatural goings-on. Yeah. (laughs) Presumably because he hasn't really been in this situation before. Um, So there's an interesting interplay between him and Deacon, and Deacon is, you know, a man of faith, but is very, very jaded. Um, Yeah. And we found out with with good reason as as time goes on. But um, and him and Mark, who Mark is this kind of more uh, uh, you know high ranking priest and more by the book kind of guy than Deacon. And I, I kind of find it interesting that there's this dynamic between the three of them, where the two priests are the ones who are like you know been there, done that, got the T-shirt, all of these miracles that were sent to investigate a fake. You know, it's all done through trickery and all the rest of it. Like they're complete skeptics. Whereas our character who's introduced as a sceptic is the one who's more ready to believe in the supernatural. Um, yeah. Yeah, I found that to be quite... I think Because often one of the issues you have with these movies where it's like, is it supernatural? Is it not? Is that it's clearly supernatural. Whereas what I liked yeah. about this film is all three of them have differing opinions on what's going on and all three of them are entirely justified in what they believe based on what they've yeah. seen. And I think what I like about with Gray's character is, yeah, he comes in as being like sort of the, you know, the non-believer, but he he is the one that is actually responsible for discovering most of this using the tech. Like, there's that really great scene where they set up all the microphones around the church mm. um, so he can capture the sound between them. Yeah, the radio mics, yeah, so you can jump from mic Yeah, to I believe it's a reference to, uh, I mean, it, it must be a point of reference, but have you ever seen the stone tapes? Uh, yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the sort of Nigel Neal Lovecraftian story. I think it's very much kind of lifted from that. Yeah, um, well, this is definitely in the mould of that, and um, a lot of British folk horror. Like the, like the characters explicitly reference the Wicker Man at one point. 
they do, yeah, and, and stuff like that. Um, and again, I think that's probably another reason why this movie kind of gets me. I always find British horror more effective, probably just because it's so much more relatable. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of, like, you know, genuinely good horror moments in this film, I think. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I love any scene to- towards the start of the movie, because we haven't actually mentioned Father Krellick yet. No, no. Um, but, I mean, this is probably the point where we should probably get into the plot. I know we've sort of spoiled it early doors by talking about, like, what this sort of reveal is. Um, mm. But we'll sort of go for it. So when they arrive at this church, they're greeted with Father Krellick, who is the one who reported this miracle, and he shows them the footage, uh, where he's baptizing a baby, and then the church bells start ringing, and objects start flying around, and Krellick starts bleeding from his nose, and then the camera glitches out and goes all kind of weird. Yes. Which Deacon is immediately like, oh, it's fake. It's absolutely fake. And Grey is like, no, no, this has to be real. And so Krellick is immediately, you know, he's like, this, it's a miracle. But then we do then see that at night, Krellick is going into this church and praying to something. Or he's yes. talking to something. Uh, which is one of the first indications that something is not quite right here. Um, and we also, you know, we get like him praying and then the sounds of children crying playing through the walls and such which is just you know wonderfully creepy yeah and it's not entirely clear whether Krellick knows he's talking to something potentially demonic or whether he's under the impression that he's talking to to God right like yeah the the movie kind of leaves it ambiguous um or certainly the impression that I got is that one of the reasons Krellick has called these guys here is because he wants them to confirm that this is, you know, the big G-man upstairs and not something around Yes. Yeah. Whereas Deacon is under the impression that Krellick has faked this because he wants to bring more people into his congregation because when we first see him, he only has two people attending his sermon. Yeah, yeah. And we also then learn that this is a this church has only recently been reopened, and it's been a project that Krellick has been working on for a while to reopen this church in this small area. Mm. Which, again, feeds into what's truly going on, because from my understanding, it's that christening that is the the first event. It's the yeah, the awakening, yeah. as it were. You know, it's the idea that because uh, we we've already sort of talked about the whole like sort of child sacrifice thing. Um, so it seems like it's the baptism of a child that is an affront to this thing that is yeah this deity haunting the church ancient yeah times, it's kind of the, yeah. the antithesis to what it was actually supposed to happen in that um, in that mm. place of worship as it were or uh, yeah it, may, it could just be that you know any ritual towards any other god is an affront I suppose but yeah I think there is that um, yeah like you say there is that direct connection between. Uh, baptism and child sacrifice is, yeah, I guess one is kind of an inversion of the other. Um, because we also yeah. learn as the movie goes on that a previous um, inhabitant of the church uh, helpfully wrote a diary journaling his madness. Um, yeah. As, Which again, very Lovecraftian. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that kind of ends on the uh, the line about, like, may God forgive me, I serve a new master now. Um, and it turns out he was murdering kids left and right and stuff like this. So, yeah, because he uh, ran an orphanage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he felt like he had kind of has like divine inspiration to uh, start the orphanage because there's a line in his journal where he says like, "Oh, the purpose of the orphanage has now become clear," which is um, <laughs> kind of terrifying, right? Yeah. 
Um, um, yeah, so that's kind of bubbling away. One thing that's kind of interesting as they're kind of... Because, um, again, like Blair Witch, this movie's plot is fairly loose. Um, it mostly revolves around the, you know, the investigation itself. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting is whenever they encounter the villagers, they're either just, like, non-responsive towards them, like that old mm. man who just doesn't talk to them, or they're openly hostile like the kids are. Because uh, there is an incident where the Utes uh, leave a burning sheep outside their house. Which is fucking horrendous. <laughs> yeah, and then we find out that it's the Utes because later on as they're walking past, they're like, Bleh. which is an interesting one because that is a bit extreme for a prank, I would say. Yeah, I, I've always you know interpreted it as you know, there's, this evil has awoken and is infecting everything around them. Yeah, and maybe it's a case of, like, has it always been there? Has this creature always kind of held sway over this area? And it's only because the uh, the Christians are trying to stick their oar in at this point that it's <laughs> kind of kicking back at them. Um, it's hard to know, really. Because uh, that's kind of part of it as well as, like... Because they talk about the the church kind of driving away the evil in this area and replacing its site of worship with their own. But it's not entirely clear if the creature is just kind of, or the entity, is kind of evil by definition or whether it's sort of retaliating against being driven out of where it's supposed to reside sort of thing. And like, you know, because there is this kind of folkloric concept that you get with demons and trolls and everything, right? That they... they they kill Christian children specifically. This idea of, like, they're almost trying to return to this pre-Christian... Like, they're trying to wipe out the next generation of Christians, almost, is the idea. Um, yeah. Certainly, that has come up in um, a lot of, you know, that kind of fiction, uh, kind of folk horror fiction from Europe, certainly, where they're all... You know, because across Europe, there is this idea, not just in Britain, but all over the place, there is this idea of, like, the Christians drove out the kind of traditional faiths and the traditional more druidic leanings I suppose of um, of the native Europeans in a, lot of, in a lot of cases which this movie is definitely playing on it's interesting, I, I'm not sure what stance this movie really has on that because Christianity is definitely portrayed as good and the paganism is definitely portrayed as bad in this movie I would say I suppose only as far as the Christianity stops whatever it is from eating children. Yeah, yeah but that's what I mean. Like the, the pagan deity is explicitly evil. Mm, but we don't know like what else it did or like what it provided. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. We don't know much else other than it eats children. So it's just by nature evil. Not whole, though. We later find that out. It doesn't devour them whole. No, no. It leaves some chewy bones behind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but if we sort of breeze through the rest of the plot so yeah they investigate this church night by night and you know the the youths burn the sheep and stuff and you know they start to notice weird shit's happening they hear the sound of children crying in the walls um, Mark discovers this doorway down to a lower part of the church but as soon as he opens it and puts his head into it he's rendered unconscious by some kind of force so he like hears something and so from that point on in the movie, he acts quite differently. Um, he's always shown to be bleeding from the ears as well upon like, hearing yeah, whatever yeah. it was that he heard. Um, 
and you know Deacon then starts to tell Gray about his experiences investigating miracles. Uh, he talks about one where a girl in Italy had stigmata. And Gray is like, you can't fake that. And Deacon then tells him, well, it seems that every single day for ten weeks, the, the girl's mother was cutting her hands and feet. Um, and the, the girl eventually died of septicemia. And the mother's response to Deacon was simply, now you can make my daughter a saint. And, you know, that's kind of the, mm. the incident that turned Deacon into this incredibly jaded alcoholic because he just he'd seen like the true kind of ugliness of what his religion is capable of, I guess. Yeah, and I suppose in a way that's almost a reflection of the child sacrifice of the pagan religion, right? Like, yeah, there are people still willing to, you know, perpetrate these evils upon their own children in the name of this vaguely defined deity, in this case the yeah. Christian god. Because we also find out, of course, Deacon has this experience in, um, is it Brazil? He went to this town that's called Bethlehem or whatever? Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, and the, you know he ended up losing uh, a lot of his own men to this mission that he kind of insisted upon seeing through to the end, which obviously is something that Mark throws back in his face later on. Um, you know, kind of saying like you've lost your way, you've lost your judgment, kind of thing. But again, it kind of almost speaks to this idea of like, I, I guess you know we were kind of saying this movie might be on the side of the Christians, but I think it is also drawing that parallel of like, well, they're sacrificing body after body to their own faith as well like there is this parallel between the very explicitly like sacrificial pagan idea versus this um almost unintentionally sacrificial christianity right like it's still you know it's still this thing of like people are still being sacrificed to the christian god i guess it's just they're not they're not as upfront about it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they're, they're not, like, making wall paintings of babies being eaten. <laughs> a little one bit more fine than that. <laughs> one thing that I wanted to flag up as an interesting uh, little tidbit. So in this interview I heard with one of the producers, uh, she was saying that, um, so throughout the movie, we see Grey talking on the phone to an unspecified person. And whenever Deacon kind of catches him, he just kind of fobs it off as like, ah, women, eh? Like that. Um, or just some other kind of excuse, right? Apparently, in one draft of this movie, it was going to transpire that he had a contact in the Vatican. Because if you listen to what he's actually saying in those phone calls, he's, like, bitching about the working conditions, or he's bitching about, like, oh, there's too much secret-keeping, you're all the same kind of thing, and all this sort of thing. Yeah. So apparently that was supposed to be, like, someone that he knows within the Vatican, and that was supposed to be this extra wrinkle to his character. They kind of ended up falling by the wayside. I just think that's an interesting element where none of these characters are completely honest with any of the others, and that seems yeah, to almost be like a condition of of this sort of church life that they're living. Yeah, because Gray is often heard talking about how they're going to pay him a big bonus, mm. and he's also made aware prior to turning up that Deacon has a drinking problem. Yes, that's right, yeah, because uh, when Deacon first shows up, there's a scene shortly afterwards where he's on the phone saying, like, oh, yeah, no, he's as sober as a Scotsman ever is, you know, and, um, you know, it's kind of implied that whoever's on the other end of the line is saying, like, you know, what what's his condition sort of thing. Yeah, and it's followed up beautifully by the scene where afterwards Grey and Krellick go, not so Krellick, uh, Grey and Deacon go shopping. And uh, they put the bags down on the table, and Gray's bought different kinds of food, and all Deacon has bought is booze. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's something that kind of runs through this movie is Deacon and Gray's unlikely friendship kind of growing. Yeah, those um, two have really good chemistry, I think. Like, their performances are really well intertwined. I, yeah. I enjoy those two. Mark is obviously the stick in the mud, and, you know, he doesn't get as much fleshing out. He gets a scene towards the end where he basically talks about wanting to move away from all this, like, Old Testament and yes. just wanting to embrace the teachings for, like, the kind of moral code of it as opposed to, you know, all the fire and brimstone that you would often associate Yeah, I thought that was interesting that they kind of show him to be this... Because when you first meet him, I was kind of expecting him to be more like... Um, you know, the traditional Christian... Because he has a few lines at the start and he's kind of saying, like, to uh, Deacon, oh, you're still one of us, or have you forgotten that sort of thing? And they kind yeah. of imply, like, oh, he's very by the book. So you almost expect him to be this this Bible thumper, right? But as it turns as it turns out, as the movie goes along, you kind of learn that Deacon is almost more the, the Old Testament guy. And uh, Mark is actually, you know, he's fairly progressive in his take on Christianity, he says about like because yeah, like you say, that speech I think is really well done by the actor where he's kind of ranting about like, yeah, I want to move away from all this, uh, you know, I want to embrace science because I don't see it as naturally opposite and he even has that line about um, this is quite this is quite intense for a Catholic to say but he says uh, that line about do I believe the world was made in six days? No I don't which um, mm. I know you as a, a godless heathen may not know the uh, the true significance of but it's uh it's a very hotly debated topic in christian circles let's say how um how old the earth is essentially yeah uh, yeah, yeah. The, Bi- the bible says one aware. thing and science says another um, yeah so that's well, quite so, like, know, like yeah that's quite a major thing of, like creationism is obviously a very hot topic and it's like you know in like the education system and such so yeah, i'm I'm, yeah, a, I'm aware yeah so that's like a very controversial thing for a Catholic priest to say, to be fair. Um, and I think it's interesting that he's kind of... Because uh, we do get a fourth character who kind of pops in later on. This uh, Italian priest who we're told oh, is... Calvino. Of, uh, yeah. Who we're told is kind of the go-to man for any sort of shady Catholic shit, right? Um, <laughs> which uh, obviously is, casts... Is he in the Legion of Uncles, I have to ask you? Do you know what? He's a borderline case, it has to be said. Yeah, he doesn't get enough screen time. But I think, I think th- I'm going to put him up there. I think the thing with the Legion of Uncles is you, you, can't, be, you can't be too dodgy if you're in the League of Uncles. And I think this guy, <laughs> he's seen some shit and he's covered some shit. That's all I'm saying. Uh, just to backpedal slightly to Mark, I did just want to point this out. Um, his whole bit where he has that speech about wanting to move away... Do you think that could possibly be as a result of the the thing that has affected him? Or do you think that's always been in his character? I just, it's just one of those things that kind of stood out to me on this latest watch. I was like, is that how he's always felt? Or, you know, has what's happened to him I think in it's that always in moment his changed his perception? I think it's always in his character, because he's the one who is always trying to shut this down, right? He's always trying to clock off early throughout this entire thing, because he's just like, it's, it's a waste of time and energy kind of thing. Yeah, um, no, fair. This is just my reading. I've only seen it the once. Yeah, but. yeah. It's just it's one of those things where I wasn't convinced of it, but I I, I definitely thought about it this time when I was watching it. Mm. Because as the we move towards the climax of the movie, we do see that Mark is more under this thing's influence than the other ones are. Yeah, I think it's more he's like fighting against that. Like I see it as more he's he's in denial that he's under the thing's influence. 
which is possibly why it can gain more influence over him, if that makes sense. Like, Yeah, because he's already got a conflict over his religion, whereas I think, obviously, Deacon is so on the cusp of just jacking the whole thing in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Grey is not really a believer. Because Mark's whole thing throughout is, like, we just follow procedure, we get it done, dot the T's, down, dot the I's, cross the T's, and just fuck off out of here kind of thing. Whereas Deacon's the one who he has to scratch the itch, he has to kind of well, hang on, there could be something to this. And after uh, Krellick throws himself off the roof, I think their yes. two... Um, spoiler alert. I think their two reactions to that are very telling, where, you know, Deacon's like, well, there must be something to do, because he's thrown himself off the roof, blah, blah, blah. And then Mark's whole thing is just like, no, he was depressed and insane. He killed himself. We should go, sort of thing. Um yeah, this is kind of what I like about this movie, is like, as much as the plot is fairly light, there is quite a lot of depth to all the characters. And they all mm. have quite a developed, you know, point of view. Because even the, the smaller characters like Krellick and um, the Italian priest who comes in, you get a very strong sense of what they think and what their response to the events are and everything. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting in that regard. I was going to say, unless you've got anything uh, more to say on that subject, I do kind of want to jump to the ending of this film. No, I think like we've definitely said everything that needs to be said about these characters. I think, yeah, they, there is a lot more going on with these characters than what you do get in these sort of standard found footage movies. And even compared to, say, Blair Witch, like there's a lot more going on with these guys. Mm. Um, I mean, we will breeze through the plot as well, because uh, uh, the ending is definitely something I want to talk about. But also, like, there's a couple of like the horror moments that I really want to kind of shout out, because I think there's some great ones uh, littered throughout. Uh, but yeah, so as you say, Krellick throws himself off the roof because... Um, he, you know, in his words, you don't believe my miracle, and you know he's clearly not entirely sure what's going on, and you kind of get a sense in that moment that he realised that he's been putting his faith in the wrong place because yeah, he's aware yeah. that whatever's happening in this church, whatever he's awoke, um, has, is you know is something truly evil, and so yeah, throws himself off the off the church, which is a really great shocking moment, um, and kind of drives the characters towards. Um, the finale because we have that scene afterwards where Deacon decides to go up to the church by himself for some fucking reason don't know why you would yeah you, you um, simply would not you know Frog marches himself up to the church in the middle of the you night you simply would not you just yeah. wouldn't would you you know singing away to himself and we get that very good creepy scene where he keeps seeing flashes of Father Krellick um, you know within the trees and stuff which is, is really quite well done I think um, he then also finds Krellick's robes, uh, and when he, you know, lifts them up, they're just full of worms and maggots, which is just grim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Deacon goes to that um, sort of passageway that Mark found earlier, and that's where he hears the the children crying again, um, and then he hightails it back to the house, and that's when he brings in uh, Father Calvino, because uh, he also hears Krellick screaming down there as well. That's the other thing. Uh, so yeah, brings in Father Calvino because they're like, we need to just do a full-on exorcism. Some sinister shit is going on here. Um, and then obviously they go through the, the, the diaries and such and they talk about how the church was built on top of a pagan ground and like the orphanage and stuff like that. So yeah, we've already kind of spoken about those elements. So they do this blessing, which goes horribly wrong because yeah, Calvino starts bleeding scene. from the eyes. Yeah. And it's yeah. kind of in that scene as well, you see almost like the 
the kind of ridiculousness of the ritual is very highlighted. Um, yeah. You know, because Mark and uh, I think Gray are both kind of in that attitude of like, what is this even doing, <laughs> this banishment ritual? <laughs> Uh, and obviously it does fuck all because it just pisses the thing off. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, lights start exploding, people are thrown about the place, Calvino starts bleeding from the eyes and the camera's cut out. And then when they come to, uh, Calvino is nowhere to be seen. Mm. Um, yeah, he's gone. Mark is yeah. uh, dead. Yep, seemingly dead. Um, and so Grey and Deacon end up going down into this underground part of the church which we've never fully seen up until this point this is the first time we see it so they immediately go down into this really confined series of underground tunnels um they can hear calvino in the distance so they're trying to find him they also then spot mark down there yeah the last time we yeah and i believe again like this is where my sort of idea of the details goes funny the last time we see mark he's seemingly dead upstairs isn't he yes he is yeah and, and then Gray says that he believes he saw him come down here. Yeah, so that's or not something to that clear. effect. Yeah, um, I mean Gray is kind of losing his shit at this point. That's that's very true, actually. Um, so the yeah, go down I, I through this series. Sure, I wasn't too sure about what was what I was supposed to take from that, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where because the the scenes from here on out are so hectic, it's kind of hard to sort of keep up with what's going on. But the main focus is that Gray and Deacon go down into these tunnels, and they're trying to find uh, Calvino, and then they keep spotting Mark, like yes. he's in almost inaccessible places that they keep going into, and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Yeah, this until... scene really triggered claustrophobia in me, actually. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, one film that. It, can't fail to remind you of is the descent, which does yeah, that for too. Sure. Brilliant, especially effect. when they're yeah. in that bit where uh, yeah they realise it's too tight, but also it's kind of blocked off behind them suddenly, like they just can't. Yeah, this is the bit of this movie that everyone talks about is the very end, um, in which they crawl into this incredibly tight space and they start to comment on how it feels wet. Yes, and you can definitely see the rocks and the formation looks very different. It's gone from stone to something almost flesh-like. Yes. Um, and then Deacon reaches an impasse where there's like a membrane with almost like a sphincter that closes up in front of him. Yes. And so he tells Grey to go back. Grey can't go back. He's closed in as well. And obviously, you know, the, the sort of intense fear of everything starts to set in. And then the, the, the ceiling and the wall start to drip and you then have the camera cutting in and out as they're screaming about how it burns and we just keep seeing flashes of their skin and their flesh being burnt off all the while Deacon is reciting the Lord's Prayer. And then it just ends. Yeah, that's the end of that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so clearly we're supposed to take it that they've somehow been literally consumed by whatever is uh, lurking below the church, right? Like it seems like they're being burned by stomach acid or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they are quite literally in the belly of the beast. Mm. Is you know, this is the, very, the sort of reading it's very like, reminiscent of a Lovecraft story, which I can't remember what it's called. So, I'm sure nerds in the comments will yell at me. But um, <laughs> there's a there's a Lovecraft story where it's like there's this thing in the basement of a house, and it, you know it's banging against the wall and blah 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 blah. And eventually, as the story goes on, they uncover this this thing, and it's this they they think it's this like writhing serpent like creature from what I remember. But then as it goes along, they realise, like, this is just, like, the finger of the entire beast, right? 
And, like, that's kind of where the story ends, is them realising, like, oh, shit, we thought that was a beast. That's just, like, a piece of this colossal creature. Um, <laughs> so I kind of recalled that to me, where it's, like, you never actually see the full entity, but you kind of, yeah, you get the sense that they've wandered, presumably through its anus, into its stomach. Um so yeah, or some kind of yeah, I mean, some kind of digestive tract of some kind, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, we see images on the walls of like the sacrifice occurring, and we see like a demonic figure that's been drawn there, yeah, and it's like holding a child. But like, you could always interpret that that's not the demon itself. That could be like a, a, a worshiper who's in like a costume or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they, you know, they sacrifice these infants on the altar and then feed them. To whatever this thing is that Mark and uh, not Mark, sorry, Deacon and Gray crawl into, um, and it's clearly yeah some kind of digestive enzyme that they're getting covered in because we also then see when they're down there they find the skeletons of all the children. Yes, these kind of um, uh, acid-washed skeletons. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of them. It's very very unsettling. Yeah, but so like, I kind of want to like. How did you find this ending? Like, what did you? What was your initial response to it? Well, you know, it's one of those things, um, every found footage horror movie kind of ends the same way, as we alluded to, right? Like, there's the moment where the <laughs> yeah, camera cuts <laughs> out or is dropped, and the main characters are gruesomely dispatched, usually out of focus or usually just off shot, right? This film kind of plays with that. I mean, you're getting the kind of first person sort of camera work, and it's very intense. Um... Yeah, I think it's an effective ending. I'm just kind of... I wanted maybe a little more build-up to the, the them being digested. Like, maybe you see a little more of what's going on outside the the stomach or the intestine or whatever it is that they've wandered into. Because um, this is a movie where, I, as, as much as I liked it, I think my slight frustration with the ending is, like, I wanted... Not an explanation, not an objective, like, this is definitely what happened. But just a little bit more of the mythos, just a little bit more of an idea of, like, what exactly this thing is doing. Because I know that part yeah. of the horror of this movie is, that obviously, uh, as the old Italian priest says, like, this is an entity, this is a god, so lost to time at this point that, like, we don't even know its name. You know, we don't even know what this thing was called, let alone what it is. Personally, I, I would have liked maybe just a little bit more of like, okay, so it takes human sacrifice, we know that, but like, what is its deal outside of that kind of thing? Like, is it just here to yeah. consume and destroy? And if so, why did people worship it? Is it just because it was powerful and had influence over them? Or is there a little bit more to it than that? Yeah, I do see what you're saying there, because um, due to the sort of vague nature of what it is, it does make the ending feel like it's shocking for the sake of being shocking, whereas, it, I mean, I feel like it is earned to a degree, because there's enough stuff peppered throughout to imply that something truly old and unknowable is at play, but yeah, I'm kind of with you in that I would like to know a little bit more about what's happening. I think it's a perfectly serviceable and effective ending, oh, yeah, and one yeah. that's going to be permanently seared into my head. Yeah, it, it works on, on the scare level, I think. I think I just maybe could have... Considering how deep the movie goes into certain aspects of it, like the the kind of nature of faith and like the 
the dark side of that. I think I would have liked a little bit more explanation of... Not even explanation, just exploration, I suppose. Because I yeah. do like the scene in the pub where they're talking about the difference between Christian faith versus paganism. That element where Grey kind of brings up the idea of, like, well, you're, you put your faith in the great what-if, but the kind of druids, as he says, they believed in real things, the sun, the moon, the earth, all the rest of it. I felt like that was a really interesting thing to bring up, but the the movie kind of doesn't really doesn't really explore that idea in a way that would have been perhaps more interesting from from my perspective anyway. Because to me, mm. all we're really talking about in this movie is two great what ifs, right? There's the Christian God mm. and whatever this pagan deity is supposed to be. Because I think they could have made more of that thing of like, oh, this is this like tangible creature that exists in the earth and is kind of flesh and blood and bone whereas god is this far away distant impossible to please father figure i think they could have done something with that or done something a little more with that um because obviously they're kind of they're kind of doing that in the sense that the way this creature kills them is very physical like they get digested by by this kind of tracked whatever it is I think I kind of wanted more of that because so much of the creature's presence is metaphysical, like it's influencing people's minds, it's, it's dragging crucifixes off the wall and all this kind of stuff. Like it's, you know, but, but obviously it's doing so through invisible telekinesis or whatever, right? Yeah, again, we don't get a. It, yeah, everything's. It's very vague. Mm. That's, the, that's the thing. And I can understand why that's, uh, you know, not particularly satisfying. It's. I like vagueness, but yeah, I'm still with you on that. I would like a little bit more, especially because it is lifting from like a lot of Lovecrafty and Do you know stuff. What film and, you know, Lovecraft was I, big I would on like to bring up is um, that I think actually this movie could have borrowed more from is John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness because I think what that yes, movie does like, you can definitely see comparisons. Yeah, because I think what that movie does is it has the the supernatural evil, but it also has this very like physical presence on what's going on in that film like it's it's not just possessing people there is this kind of you know it, it's it's not just this kind of nebulous like force of darkness there is kind of a, a tangible effect that it has on the world which i think this movie needed a little more of for my money but um what do you reckon um, I I do agree with you. Um, I think it might also just be a budgetary thing. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. Like, I think that definitely does play into it. And you did mention that you uh, listened to some interviews with the producers and stuff, and they said that there was drafts of the script and mm. stuff like that. Um, so definitely, I think that it may have been something that they may have wanted to explore, but felt like they couldn't, or you know, maybe they just made the conscious decision to leave it deliberately vague. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess we'll never know. I mean, yeah, uh, more would be good. And I'd say, when, especially when you talk about Prince of Darkness, yeah, I think that movie strikes the balance between, like, uh, an unknowable force really kind of permeating within the real world and having, like, a genuine effect on its surroundings. Because obviously in that movie, you've got, like, the, the legion of murderous hobos led by Alice Cooper, for example. <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah. Um, yeah, which is great. And uh, I love all those little um, video shots in Prince of Darkness of the the sort of cloaked figure mm. in the doorway and stuff, you know. And it's like that the, the thing itself is like a big tube of green goo. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. Like you yeah, you get a sense of what it is and like you and it just it has powers yeah. and you see what it can do. Whereas this is 
there's a church built to this thing. People clearly worshipped it. We know it eats children. What else is it? Like, what else does it do? Um, yeah, like, what is its goal? I guess is the thing. Or yeah. does it have one? Is it just is it just dominion over the earth? Yeah, just influencing people to do its bidding. Like, is that all yeah. it really? Or is does? it kind of like? I, I guess maybe they're playing into that Lovecraftian thing of like it's this inscrutable evil that you can never really understand. But then I think the thing that Lovecraft has that this movie doesn't quite get is like the thing that he kind of harps upon with his elder gods and so forth is like their complete indifference to humanity is what makes them like a terrifying force, right? It's not even necessarily that they're all completely malicious and want to destroy it's just the fact that they don't care. Like they're just going to do whatever they do and if it destroys humans we're like ants on the windshield to them. It doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Like human life is completely meaningless to them, and you know a lot. That's the whole sort of like nihilism, and that's a very sort of common trope within Lovecraftian fiction, anyway. Mm. So, shall we move on to Kino Inferno for this one? Um, we can. The only thing I want to just briefly touch on is just a couple of the little creepy moments. There's one moment in particular that I really want to shout because I love it so much. And it's it, some people say it's a little bit hokey, but I think it's brilliant. Um, there's the bit. Uh, where Grey is stood out in the uh, churchyard and he's just having a cigarette. Uh, there's just this... I, I'm guessing you clocked it. Yeah, I feel like yeah, you would have the, clocked the it. The gravestone, yeah. Yeah, where he looks down at the gravestone and it says his name on it. Mm. And then he looks away and looks back and the name is different. I, like it's, it's little moments like that in this movie that I really, really enjoy. Yeah. Um, and then you've also got like the, the dog that patrols the nearby area that sort of pops up every so often. Yeah, uh, I quite like that. Um, but no, I just wanted to shout that moment out because I love it. I think it's 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 the kind of moment that I'm like, God, that's the sort of thing I'd put in anything that I write. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I like to see that kind of stuff on screen. But you now going into the rating side of it, um, it's a keno from me because I love like I do kind of love this movie. Um, I think when you can when you're going into the found footage stuff you can do so much worse than this and I think this is a movie that's genuinely trying it does have its little sort of foibles mostly in that sort of like vagueness that we talked about at the end but if I'm in the mood for this kind of movie like with Blair Witch this is something that I'll go to um, and again similar to Blair Witch the creepy moments in this movie always work for me I think the characters are always very engaging I'd say the the characters in this movie are uh, more enjoyable than in Blair Witch, just because they're a bit more varied and they've got a yeah. lot more going on under the hood. Yeah. Blair Witch is just three college students going crazy. This is, you know, this is actually asking questions about faith and, you know, how far one's faith can go in the face of, like, you know, unspeakable evils, not only within, like, the sort of supernatural realm, but within, like, the religion itself and just within everyday people that believe in that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I really, you know, I, I'll throw a lot of credit towards the writing of this movie, even though not all of the writing is up to the same standard. Yeah, I think I'd basically just agree with your thoughts yeah i I think this is a keynote for me um i think in terms of yeah the found footage thing as a gimmick as a genre this is a movie that is clearly made by people who have had similar thoughts about the genre to me um because i you know they kind of go out of their way to explain why the film is going on why it's happening in this particular way and throughout the film like Grey's whole thing is like introducing new recording technology to to the situation to see what they can find and it kind of builds from there so I definitely really appreciated that element it feels like a movie that isn't just saying 
let's just have a shaky cam, cheap camera movie and get it over with. Um, yeah, I think I'd just echo your thoughts really like that. I could have done with perhaps a little bit more expansion on some of the movie's ideas, but assessing the movie for what it is and not what I'd like it to be, I think it's pretty solid. I'd definitely watch it again. Um, it has an overwhelming Britishness to it, which uh, I found quite entertaining. Um, yeah, the acting the acting's all, uh, you know, good, strong performances. So I think all in all, really, although it's maybe, to me, hampered by the fact that it's in a particular subgenre, if I was going to pick out, uh, you know, a found footage movie to watch, I think this would be pretty high up on my on my list. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, and I'm glad you enjoyed it because I know I've recommended this to you a few times. So I'm glad to know that you did actually enjoy it. Mm. So bearing that in mind, Mark, uh, obviously we're still lost in the the spooky woods. So um, it's unclear whether next week's episode featuring Abdul Balabas on uh, Digimon the movie and Pokemon the movie will be released because obviously we might have uh, died of exposure or starvation or which by then um yeah so uh, obviously you know if you want to uh, listen to that i mean obviously if you want to keep your eyes out for that and make sure we've uh, survived our ordeal you can find us on uh, well you can find us on uh, apple podcasts at kino inferno you can find us on spotify at kino inferno you can find us at twitter at tweet kino underscore inferno you can find us on uh, instagram uh, kino inferno or underscore i can't remember but it's there you can find us on stitcher kino inferno uh whew, yeah so uh it's uh goodbye possibly for the last time from from me aiden and potentially goodbye for the last time from me too i just want to say sorry to aiden's mum um mm. because i know she'll beat me up if i don't yeah, um yeah yeah, she'll she'll find my corpse and stomp on it. I think. Um, but yeah, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me, the Blair Witch. Have a spooky time, y'all. way well we're going down so that must be right except we went down and then up so look we, we should just keep going we're bound to hit something soon we should probably hurry because sophie said there might be a bit of a thunderstorm coming in oh great so we have no idea where we are and there might be a storm coming in and we haven't got any stuff and brilliant we're dead meat this isn't the matterhorn jeremy it's the quantox nobody dies in the quantox if we're very unlucky. We might have wandered onto Exmoor, but... Exmoor? The Moors? The Baron Moors? The Moors murderers? We could easily die on a moor. Give me your phone. Why? I'm gonna call Mountain Rescue. No. That's what they're there for. We're not calling Mountain Rescue. We're not gonna be two of those idiots you hear about who go up mountains in flip-flops and sombreros and have to get rescued. What? You'd rather be one of the idiots they find frozen to death being chewed by badgers drinking their own piss? You can't call Mountain Rescue anyway. This isn't a mountain, it's a hill. Oh, right. They're gonna leave me to die because I haven't got a geography degree. You'd prefer that, wouldn't you? To die rather than to ask for a simple piece of help. We are so going to die. Will you please stop saying that?